Would you bet a few thousand dollars that you could sink an eight-foot putt? What about 10 grand that you could win a drag race against a Camaro with a thousand horsepower? If you bet $2 million, could you bet it all on one football game? Maybe you wish you could, but you probably wouldn't. Gamblers is about the people who did. From the Ringer Podcast Network, listen to Gamblers Season 2 on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. You know what sounds good after a long day? Ice cream. I love ice cream. Right now is the perfect time to get some. Sonic has half-price shakes every night after 7 p.m. when you order online or in the app. Just think of it, all that creamy, soft-serve, hand-mixed with your favorite flavors for half the price in any size. Listen, a lot of people like goofy shakes. I like vanilla shakes. You can throw 40 flavors at me. You know what I'm going to order? You know what I love the most? Vanilla shakes. It's perfect because me and my family... At least once a week, we still all get ice cream together when we're together. Grab Sonic Half Price Shakes after 7 p.m. now. Exclusions apply. Available for a limited time only at participating Sonic drive-ins. Have you made your decision for Christ? <laughs> it's Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. This was no ordinary contest. First prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Third prize is your fire. So they did what they had to do. Somebody uh, to do something to them. To win. Oh, you need a little boost. I'll go out and rob everybody blind and go to Argentina. So be it. You rob the office. Oh, sure. I rob the office. Oh, sure. How can you talk to me that way? Are you talking to me? From the Pulitzer Prize winner, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. This is how we keep score. Bippy. Rated R. Coming soon to a theater near you. Oh, this is a special one. While bronchitis Bill is away, Sean Fennessy and I will play. I'm Chris Ryan. We're doing the rewatchables. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. A movie where, um, Sean, you know how there's that meme going around where it's like men will literally name random sports, random athletes to avoid therapy? I feel like that's us, but it's lines from this movie. No like question. rather than actually communicate our emotions or anything about our inner interiority we just say lines from glengarry glenn ross for yeah. 30 years i subscribe to the law of contrary public opinion if everyone thinks one thing then i say bet the other way the you know the hottest take is born of that you know the the purest intentions of the ringer is born of that um we're here to celebrate the 30-year anniversary of glengarry glenn ross which came out last week in 1992, so October 1992. Uh, it's directed by James Foley, who was coming off of a, you know, probably forgotten to time noir movie called After Dark, My Sweet. Al Pacino is a big fan of James Foley's uh, At Close Range, which is, I think, a pretty memorable movie, Sean Penn movie. Incredible. Uh, yeah, and James Foley and Al Pacino wanted to make a movie version of David Mamet's Pulitzer Prize winning real estate drama, Glengarry Glenn Ross. And they wound up putting together what Pacino's co-star Jack Lemmon would call the greatest ensemble he has ever been a part of. And I thought we could start there. I thought we could talk about ensemble movies and I thought we could talk about Murderer's Row of actors because 
This is in the first paragraph. If you're if you're talking about the greatest ensembles put together, Sean, you have to have Glengarry Glen Ross in there. You do, but here's the thing: it's not just that it's one of the greatest ensembles ever put together. It's that it's one of the greatest ensembles ever put together performing at their highest level. Yes. Because this does happen more frequently than you think. I'll give you an example. There's a movie that came out last weekend called Amsterdam. It's got a hell oh, yeah. of a cast. Christian Bale, Marco Robbie, Robert De Niro, a number of other actors. Taylor Swift, she's in the film. Uh, and she's at the peak of her powers. Uh, as, as a performer, of, certainly. As a performer, yeah. Um, star-studded cast. Movie doesn't work for a variety of reasons. It's not really the cast's fault, but I wouldn't say it's the cast at their best. This is a case where you've got particularly one generation of actor, maybe one and a half generations of actor, that you can see they're sort of sniffing around each other and saying, like, how can I get to the level of this other guy? There's a competition among all these guys in a way. And the play breeds that, right? The mm-hmm. script breeds that. And it's it's just a feast for for all these really, really skilled and largely experienced dudes. Is it the greatest? I don't know. How do you measure that? You know, like that. I don't know. I mean, you could say like Godfather is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You, you, I I think that sometimes I just get chills when uh, Alec Baldwin's character Blake is giving his famous speech in Glengarry Glen Ross, and you're looking out on that office. And even though Pacino's not in that scene, you have Ed Harris, you have Alan Arkin, you have Kevin Spacey, you have Baldwin, and you have Jack fucking Lemon getting absolutely decapitated by Baldwin in that scene and just the uh, the sheer amount of like, acting talent at that moment present in a single shot or in a single moment on a stage is just it's just astonishing um what was your story with this movie so like what like what did you see it like I guess you probably would have been about like what like 11 10 years old when it first came out in 92 I was 15 do you remember when you first came across this uh, I do. I was. I, I didn't see it in the theater. I was too young. But um, we, this film actually came up when we talked about Boogie Nights, uh, which is House of Games, which is one mm-hmm. of my dad's favorite movies of all time. And so when I was probably about 10, 11 years old, my dad showed me House of Games because he absolutely loved it. And I think it, it was having a run on cable at the time starring Joe Montaigne, who originated the role of Ricky Roma. Um, and I just got hooked on that world that Mamet created. And so even as a, as a teenager, probably 12 or 13 is when I first saw Glengarry, I started hunting out his name and trying yeah. to find his scripts and trying to figure out what he had authored. Because even as a kid, he, had, he has this rhythmic, syncopated, slightly awkward, but intoxicating writing and speech style that if you like it, you love it. And you get so deep inside of it and so excited by it that I was kind of in from there on in. I, I This might have even been the second, maybe the third or fourth Mammoth movie that I saw because he's really, really busy, not as a playwright, but as a, as a filmmaker and as a, a screenwriter at this yeah. time. Yeah, I mean, he wrote a lot of scripts. He directed a bunch of movies in that window between like 87 and 95. And so it was kind of an awesome time to be coming up and getting excited about him because, you know, he's making The Spanish Prisoner. He's making... Uh, Oleana. He's making mm-hmm. like these really complex, fascinating movies, all kind of different, but all undeniably Mimetian. Um, I don't know. What about you? When, when did you? When did this movie come to you? So I remember in '91, my dad really loving Homicide and telling me about it. So the, Homicide is a, a movie that he made, he wrote and directed with Joe Mantegna, 
Bill Macy and William H. Macy and and Rebecca Pigeon, who I believe he went on to marry at a, at a certain point. And it's about a homicide detective working one case in Chicago and who gets pulled off of it to work on a particularly sensitive case to the Jewish community because he is a Jewish detective and him kind of coming to terms with his identity, which in a lot of ways, many of Mamet's works, aside from Glengarry Glenn Ross, are about like you're wrestling with your own identity. Mm -hmm. um, as soon as you hear a David Mamet movie or play, but in our case, movies, because we were kids and we weren't going to Broadway or to Steppenwolf or anything, you you know you're in the presence of something unmistakable and unique, even if you can't put, even if you can't articulate why. And I think that, you know, and ha so Homicide came out, and I think around then was when I sort of casually started looking at Premiere and Entertainment Weekly or whatever. And so I was aware that this cast was assembling, and we were kind of on the upswing of this Pacino renaissance. Jack Lemmon obviously wasn't doing a ton of very serious work at the time. Like, you know, obviously he's one of the great American stage actors and one of the great American screen actors, but was certainly in the twilight of his career and was really only doing work that he wanted to be doing at that point, it seemed like. So just the idea that those two were going to be in it. And I remember the trailer, gosh, I can't remember whether it was on, it must have, maybe it was on the Homicide VHS or something, but there mm. was a trailer for Glengarry and I was like, that's interesting. Why do those guys talk like that? You know, like, why do these guys talk like that? And that's the thing about this movie is it's not almost, I mean, it's it's obviously a rewatchable, but it's also a re-listenable. Mm. And people always used to tell me, like, Mamet writes dialogue the way people talk. And the older I get, and maybe this is more of a consequence of the fact that, like, you and I communicate largely by being like, damn, Mets, pain, LMAO. <laughs> <laughs> see you later like, like that's basically how we talk now but to me people don't talk like mammoth characters the mammoth characters talk like mammoth characters like the rhythms and the staccato nature of the way they talk the repetition the uses of cliches and tropes from other lines of work being brought in you know imitating some guy's voice for a line it, it's just it's so him it's there's not really anybody else like him and it doesn't actually sound like the way people talk no i i don't think that i i think i probably thought that it was how adults talked when i was a kid when i saw it and aspired to the kind of sharp intelligent obviously deeply masculine kind of slightly angry but very intelligent way of speaking the truth is is that pretty much all of his characters talk like david mamet they don't yeah. talk like mammic characters. If yeah. you've ever heard him speak, he is extremely clear-minded in the way that he communicates. And he's a very, very intelligent guy, very considered person. He's someone who has clearly thought very deeply about what it is he's doing and trying to communicate in his work. And it's the same way. A lot, you know, most of his characters are skilled in the art of something. You know what I mean? They are, they're often guns for hire. And they're often out for themselves and sort of like making the most out of their circumstances. And they're mostly not trustworthy people, but they are very, very good at what they do. And so I think it's a very impressionable kind of movie. It really makes an impression on you because you're like these guys who, you know, with a lot more life experience when I look back on this movie mm -hmm. are really like the losers of the losers, like the, oh, scum, yeah. the scum of the scum, you know, people who are straight up criminals selling worthless property to doddering old people. I mean, that is Who are filling dark. out like cards and magazines being like, yeah. I would like more information on this imaginary Florida retirement community or this imaginary Arizona retirement community. Yeah, taking advantage of these people. And, and obviously what they do is a kind of stock and trade. And the film itself, 
And the, uh, the play itself is obviously like a spiritual sequel to another play about a salesman. And, you know, he's, he's almost like responding to the lineage of stories about these kinds of guys and making it even more bleak and even more ground level. And it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable, like what, how much it imprinted on me at the time. And what I found myself thinking about when I was watching it this time around is, would I have liked this movie if I saw it at 40 for the first time? That's a great question. I don't know. Because like I, I had this moment watching it, getting ready for the pod. And I don't know why I had never noticed this before. But when the second half of the film starts, and one of the great things that we'll talk about about this movie is the structure, which is essentially it's two scenes. It's night and day. But when Ricky pulls up to the office in the morning, which the jazz music starts, the movie changes, the color scheme changes, everything about it changes, and then it becomes largely an Al Pacino movie for the second half. But he pulls up, and I'm like, Premier Properties is a fucking dump. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is a storefront wedged in between, like, whatever, like a hardware store and a nail salon across the street from a Chinese restaurant. It's just one of those places in your life that you would walk by 100,000 times and not think twice about what it is, especially in New York or Chicago or these big cities where you're you're walking down the street and you're just like, oh, yeah, vape store, this store, that store, this store. You never go in and then you just wonder, like, whose lives are in there. Mm-hmm. And even Ricky who is in the world of this movie such a fucking hotshot and such a badass. It's probably a gunslinger, and if he was really this good, he probably wouldn't be working at Premier Properties, right? Absolutely. Like even, and, and he sounds like he's been there for a little while. You know, like all of these guys more or less have been like stuck in neutral in their lives, addicted to being on this board and working off of their whatever it is, 10, 20% commissions from these sales. So yeah, if you see it at 40, you almost look at it and say, oh, these guys are all going through a perpetual midlife crisis. But when you see when you're 15, you're like, I have an entirely new way of speaking. Yeah. And I think that when you're 15 and you don't know how to speak to anyone with confidence, except maybe your mom, you think that that's something that you should aspire to. And then when you're 40 and you see these people talking to each other this way, and you're just like, this is inhumane. But the thing is, is it's really, really funny. I mean, the reason it's so quotable is because Mamet has this like incredible sense of dark humor, and he might be the most gifted person with profanity that we've ever had writing screenplays in Hollywood. So you put all that stuff together. It's obviously, it made a huge impression on me. It's a movie that I've seen many, many, many times that I think is very, very funny, very, very fun. I think its underlying message is extremely, exceedingly dark about mm-hmm. the nature of man, but I kind of get a kick out of those movies. So for me, it's it's easy. Like it is it is in that very, very short list of movies that I, I'm sure you and I clicked on it like within the first year that we knew each other. Well, yeah, I mean, it's this, this became one of those movies. I'd be curious to see whether or not, I'm sure there are people who are listening to this podcast who are looking forward to the day that we did this movie. I don't know how much it's sort of like continued to graduate down to like do hedge fund guys and crypto guys like watch Glengarry and get a kick out of it the way the boiler room generation did like I will say I'm not resetting it in the crypto world is a genius idea that might be the Netflix (laughs) 10 episode series Ted call us but uh yeah like this movie became pretty much in high school when I when I was in high school but especially in college and then seriously when you when I moved to New York and met you met a bunch of people this was like, you could be at a bar and you could just say, always be closing. Or you could say, uh, 
but why don't you buy me a pack of gum? I'll show you how to chew it or whatever. Like all these lines from this movie. And sometimes I would even say lines from this movie just for my own entertainment. Like sometimes like we would be in a bar and somebody would be like, where's Sean? And I'd be like, well, I'm not a leash, so I don't know. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I, I don't know what that is. This is I how we used to entertain ourselves before YouTube. <laughs> Just saying these lines over and over again. Well, that's a, that's a good way of framing it too, because you know when you saw the movie in the 90s, you couldn't revisit it that easily without re-watching the whole thing. You know, maybe you could catch it on TV, but now, and especially the Always Be Closing speech, and I'm sure we'll talk about that quite a bit, the Alec Baldwin scene, which was not originally in the play, that's something that is is got to be in that top 10, top 20 most viewed single YouTube movie scenes of all time, right? Yeah. And it has been uh, parodied on SNL. It's something that is constantly referred to, I'm sure, from boardrooms to barrooms across the country. But... It felt like a rare coin in the 90s. It felt like a special thing when the movie cropped up somewhere and you could ha- see that moment and have that moment. And so, I don't know, it's, we talk about that all the time on the show, like how slightly more special something like this felt in the 80s, 90s, and even early 2000s. But it dawns on me as I watch the movie again, the scenes I like the most are obviously not that one. You know, the mm-hmm. scenes I like the most are just as kind of full-breathed and speechifying but they're Ricky across the table from Jonathan Price, you know, or they're uh, Ricky and 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 Ed Harris screaming at each other at the end of the movie. Those are the, yeah. the scenes that really resonate for me now. The uh, the Alec Baldwin speech, his character's name is Blake, which I don't think is made clear in the actual movie, but is is who he's attributed to, has now entered the heat bank ro- robbery zone for me, where it's like it's obviously one of my favorite scenes of all time, but when I watch the movie. It's like, I don't actually need to see this scene. And it's funny because Baldwin's is the same thing. He's like, I still love this thing. But like, for me, it's not about that scene. It's about everything else that's happening in it. And I think that the older I get too, scarily enough, characters like Moss and Levine are making way more sense to me than they did when I was 15, when it was basically like, oh, it's just all about Baldwin and Pacino in this movie. Yeah, it's a smart thing to do in the movie too, which is, putting a master of the universe in a room full of guys who think they're master of the universe, or at least have to try to pretend to be, to be good at their jobs. And it's kind of amazing to think that this wasn't a part of the original hugely celebrated play. Like it really does shift and transform the movie. And it also, it gives us some staccato break the same way that the, the dialogue does, because the play takes place entirely inside of the Chinese restaurant in the first act and entirely inside of Premier Properties in the second act. What that one scene does is in the first act, it drags us back to the office. Right. And it shows us that there's like, it just makes the movie more cinematic. It's not just because of the way that it's shot that we can talk about how James Foley like made a play feel like a great film, but it gives you a, a, a deeper sense of place. And even though that place is New York and should be Chicago, that's another thing that I find very confusing about this movie. It's like one of the most Chicago plays ever written. And the dialogue and the way that the guys talk to each other is so Chicago. But if Al Pacino is going to lead your movie, you kind of have to change it to New York. It feels like that's what happened here. Yeah, I mean, well, so they shot the movie largely in New York, I think, I almost entirely. She, in Brooklyn, I think a lot of the exteriors are there. There's New York payphones, there's New York subways. We, I was going to talk about this a little bit later on, but I do think it's worth noting that Al Pacino is in a New York 
movie and Ed Harris is in a Chicago movie. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's one of the things that really jumps out. I don't even know if it's age the worst. It was sort of a nitpicking nit, but it's like Ed Harris talking about working on Western. And I assume that's like basically a car, like an auto mall on Western in Chicago. And saying he's going to Wisconsin at the end of the movie when he storms out of the office, which would make sense for a guy in Chicago who is probably not doing that great. He's probably got a car. He can drive to Wisconsin if he wants to. But then all the other vibes of this movie, it feels like Ricky Roma is a real like, I don't know. I don't know where he would live. Maybe Long Island. I'm not sure if there's like, who's the most Long Island guy in this movie. You'd have to answer that for me. It's a good question. It's it's probably more likely that he has like a one bedroom on 82nd Street or like in Hell's Kitchen. But I mean, he is a lifelong bachelor, right? He kind of like they, the movie yeah. even insinuates like after closing his big sale the night before he went out and, and met a young lady and you yeah. know, calls her at the end of the. I just at, wanted to tell her how much I enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, I know. What um did you do? You find that your favorite characters shift over time in this movie, like because obviously Blake and the big speech is a huge thing, and I don't know if you would say like that's my favorite character. He's they kind of just bring Satan into the movie for yeah. eight minutes, but it's hard to not want to quote that nonstop when you're 16 years old. Do you find yourself like? getting excited about Moss or is it is it always Roma or how, how does it work? So this is top four Pacino for me, I think. So mm. this is a very, very highly rated Pacino performance for me. But this time, the last like three times I've seen it probably more and more blown away by Ed Harris. Yeah, he's and, pretty sick. Uh, not only his performance, which is great, but just the character of Moss and what he does over the course of the movie and how he's clearly engaged both Aronau and Levine to do this robbery and has pulled the same bullshit with both of them, which we're going to talk about at a certain point because I think, you know, one of the things I love about Quentin Tarantino's writing is he understands like the dynamics of power that happen within conversations and how things can turn on a dime. And if somebody says one wrong word, all of a sudden the other guy is flipped and like become the aggressor and this other person is now on defense. And I think Mamet does that better than almost anyone. And the conversations that happen in this movie, often ones with Moss, feel like they are actually happening. Like it feels like when Roma says to Moss, fuck do you care? Like you can hear a pin drop because it's just like, oh shit, now Moss is going to lose his temper. You know what I mean? Or when Moss turns it on Aronau and is like, you listened, you know, like you're, you're going to do the robbery. I'm going to get a bigger payout. And if you don't do this, you're an accomplice. And it's like, well, why are you doing this to me? It's like, cause you listened, you know, like the way that those things change and Moss is often at the center of those, those dynamics. Yeah. He, he also is the engine of the plot. I mean, the movie and the, and the play do not exist without his character engineering the robbery of premier properties. I was, I was looking back at the uh, original Chicago cast mm-hmm. and it's Montana JT Walsh, right? It's it's Montana JT Walsh. Um, in the Levine role is the great Robert Prosky, who we oh, talked yeah. about quite a bit in Thief. And Moss is played by James Tolkien. Do you know who James Tolkien is? I know the name, but why can't I see the face in my head? He is uh one of the supporting figures in the Back to the Future franchise and in Top Gun. He's the bald headed motherfucker from oh, Top Gun. Oh, yeah. And and Tolkien and Ed Harris are such specific archetypes of American acting, which yeah. is the r- slightly bald rageful, bald, angry man. Yeah. Yeah. And it it requires a very specific type. Now, Ed Harris is a, a more accomplished actor than James Tolkien, but it's interesting to see 
Mamet like set that archetype and say, this has to be this kind of guy. This is a guy who takes no shit, but also feels like he's been fucked over and will fuck anybody else over to get what he needs. And that's largely representative of, I think, what he's trying to say with the play, which is like, this world that we created is a kill or be killed world because of the way that we made it. And it makes men like this. It makes guys do these terrible things to each other just for, what, $7,500? I mean, for nothing. Oh, for God, no that's money. The, I mean, that's one of the things that's amazing is easy, even adjusted for inflation. Like, these guys are just, like, scratching out a living. Yeah. And you just imagine the credit card bills and, like, the, you know, because, like, I remember, you know, in the 80s and 90s, like, growing up and sometimes I would go downstairs and I would just see my mom, like, paying bills. And it would just be balancing her checkbook and, like, well, we should pay this here and we should pay that there and I'm going to pay off the trip to Florida next year and stuff like that. And, like, you can just imagine... Like Shelly does it all movie, but you can even see Dave going home and just being like, fuck, you know, like I have to pay my gas bill and I only got $2,200. And that's why these guys fucking will will basically commit a crime for Jerry Graff is because $10,000 will change their lives. It's it's life's margins, you know, like a lot of Mammoth's work is about that too. A lot of Mammoth's work is like, did you say the exact wrong thing at the wrong moment that leads to what could have been a manageable situation becoming a crisis. Yeah. And he's so smart about that. In this case, like it's very easy to read and to say what's going on with Moss, right? Maybe Moss has a gambling debt or maybe he's over leveraged on his mortgage or maybe it's even as small as what you're saying. Maybe it's just like he went to Honolulu two years ago and he still just hasn't been able to pay down the debt of the I mean, I just think it's like also Moss is just second best. Yes, for sure. It's like he has real like, I'm just never going to get the respect I deserve when I'm working with Ricky here. It's such a fascinating piece of work too because you don't often see guys who are at the top of their craft be willing to take the less glamorous part and Moss is a less glamorous part than Roma. Alan Arkin's part while it is a almost prototype Alan Arkin role is very small, has very yeah. little dialogue, really has only one showcase scene but if it's not him it's a much weaker movie. And Arkin was like the slowest to sign on to do it and it, by all accounts, it's just been kind of like this Aronow part is just getting skull fucked for like two hours. Like, am I really sure I want to do this movie? And he might have been the second most accomplished actor in that troupe behind Jack Lemon. He was an Academy Award winner. He's a guy who'd been working for 35 years to, to that yeah. point. And I guess he was not an Academy Award winner at that time, but he would go on and become an Academy Award. He was Academy Award nominee. The other thing too, really quickly, 29 Academy Award nominations now among the cast of this movie. So yes. that's pretty fucking good. Although it's got shockingly few for this movie. That's true. Uh, it, it is interesting though how they just got the right person at the right time. And, and the same goes for Kevin Spacey. I mean, Kevin Spacey was not a big movie star. This is well before American Beauty. And he's cast in the role of Williamson, who frankly is the exact Kevin Spacey energy. Yeah. The, the, what is needed for that part is what he brings he to the movie. He is Mr. Will You Go to Lunch to me. Yes. Still. E- to this exactly. day, he's still like, this Kaiser Soze, LA Confidential, I will just never forget like, go to lunch. Go to lunch. Will you go to lunch? Like that's, yeah. it's kind of burning. I know that, um, so that's, you, you mentioned, you know, you know the accomplishments of, of Arkin on, on stage. Kevin Spacey was basically recruited out of doing Long Day's Journey into Night with Jack Lemmon, had been on stage. I think Pacino went and took James Foley to go see him in a play some like in London. Uh, this was very much like a stage two film adaptation. We don't have to belabor it because I don't know how fascinating. Like, what do you think of the challenges of adapting plays to screen art? But I will say that 
I think that this is like a kind of miraculous cinematic movie, given what the material suggests it is. Um, the David Mamet writes wonderful screenplays. The Verdict, Untouchables, like you could go on and on. But you know, this is a play that he added two scenes to. It took them ten years to get, almost ten years to get this from stage to screen. Uh, several, several iterations of this cast. A producer uh, who is essentially just dedicated to spending eight, nine years doing what it needed to be done to make mm -hmm. this movie. And I think that one of the reasons why it's remained in the consciousness is that it does not feel like a filmed play. And I know some people have had that criticism, but it it is a really cinematic movie. It has visceral cinematic energy. There's a couple things going in its favor. One, I think it is very clearly on the short list of like 12 Angry Men and A Streetcar Named Desire and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in terms of the best filmed place, right? Like, it's very, very hard to do this well. There's a case to be made that the more contained it is, the better. Uh, before we started recording, uh, producer Craig was saying, you know, Rope is an interesting example of this yeah. too, because that's an example where Hitchcock brings to a play a very cinematic trick that works well in telling the story in terms of the long takes and the sense of that you're watching one continuous shot. This doesn't have a trick like that, but what it has is atmosphere in an atmosphere that you could never get in a play, which is that this is a, sm a smoky, jazzy, noir movie. That is that is the style of film that James Foley brings to it. And if you've seen At Close Range or After Dark My Sweet, you know that that is a style of storytelling that Foley excels at. Like, he's really, really good at, you know, the fog and steam rising up off of the manhole cover in the sewer. You know, the elevator train and the noise and the sound design of this movie is very good. Listen to the rain falling and the train rolling while Alec Baldwin is giving that speech. Yeah. It helps build atmosphere in this movie. It's unmistakable. The other thing too is camera movement is good. Yeah. You know, it's like 12 Angry Men is the same thing. Look at where they put the camera and look at how the camera moves. Look at how the camera follows characters. Look at how it does a one shot. Look at how when he, when he sets up a two shot, who is in power in the frame, who is not in power, who's off screen and why. All of those decisions, they seem small. Think about how a person makes a movie. Think about all the decisions they have to make, even with a deeply contained script like this. It all has to work. This is, Mamet has said, even though he didn't direct this movie, this is one of his, one of his favorite adaptations of his work. Oh, you can yeah. tell because it's it's all the right people at the right time working hard to make this all click. And it's pretty cool and it feels effortless. You know, you don't feel like, I, I, the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, this is clearly a play. You know, like that's just it. It doesn't. It doesn't feel. I only knew it just because I knew it was considered like one of the great American plays that had been produced recently, and I think I'd started getting really into him, so I was aware of American Buffalo and stuff like that. But yeah, it doesn't feel like not to take a shot at August Osage County, but when you see August Osage County on screen, it's like a lot of it is basically set in this house, and they've just like kind of stretched it out so that there's like a drone shot of a car coming over the the hill or whatever and it feels a little bit more outdoorsy than it really is and this movie instead uses the interior like the interiors of the movie as a strength rather than as a as a weakness or something that's holding the movie back um did you ever see this on stage i never have i never have it was revived i want to say in 2000 2000 yeah so my dad took me to this, this was this was, a john leguizamo one did you see that no it was Liev schreiber Okay. And um, Alan Alda played Levine. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's so Leah Schreiber played Roma and Alan Alda played Levine. And it was really good. Here's the thing that's funny is that I think that this movie has now become... 
or because of the play's longevity and its its sort of long-lasting long popularity. It's been done many times. Al Pacino even did a version where he plays Levine. I sent yep. you that clip. I think that was in 2013. When people would come out and do their sort of big speeches or their famous lines, like the entire audience would clap. Yeah. And it was like cracking up at every line. And the performances were very big. Obviously, in a theater, you're going to have to go a little bit higher than you, you would in screen. You can get away with a lot of quiet moments. But you don't get the intimate seduction of Roma and Link on stage that you do on screen, you know? The interesting thing about that the play is, I think what you put your finger on, which is that it has become like a broad comedy. There was a, yeah. an ad, there was a revival, I think after the one that you're describing, starring John Leguizamo and Cedric the Entertainer. Oh, and wow. now I think actually both of those guys are, are very underrated as dramatic actors, but that's not stunt casting. I think it's an indication of where the audience went with this show which is that it became a series of you know laugh lines and applause lines as opposed to what it started out as which is this part of this long lineage of deeply sad portraits of failing men in America you know like that's really what it's a, what it's a story of and it, as you track the way that it's cast over the years it's just it's a different piece of art and I think that there's like a variety of ways to interpret this movie and people can frankly enjoy it as any way that they want if they want to enjoy it as a comedy. By all means, it's hilarious. Uh, yeah. But you can't get around the fact that Mammoth's intent is to reveal, I think really kind of like the dying middle-aged American masculine aesthetic and kind of like what our professional systems have built up and forced us into and the way that we're all kind of rats in a cage for long stretches of our lives. Like he's got a really good handle on that. And it's, it's notable too. I think that this is written in, not in that burst of first fame for him, not in that burst of sexual right. perversity in Chicago and the duck variations. It's the second step. It's when he's right. getting into his thirties. It's when he's getting a little older, he's been around the block a little bit and he's like, what is what is my life going to be about? What did the guys I saw who came before me? What what were their lives about? Um, it's just it's a more much. It's at least a work about maturity, and so it's really funny that it's become like a, just a broad comedy at this point. You're right, but it's also like it's it's amazing how timeless it is too, right? Because it was written in the '80s during the stock market boom. It comes out in the early '90s, kind of on the. The, the precipice of Clintonism. And then it's played different ways to different generations for all the years since. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I guess we could do like the sort of what's aged the worst stuff is like, would this business work in this way? Like, does this business exist now in this way? The sort of like, I don't false I mean, real estate. Does it, does house flipping feel that much more That's like a good point? like stable than than magazine subscription card leads does people like speculate i mean real estate speculation is essentially driving our economy in a lot of well, ways well there's one thing and this is really trampling on on what's age the worst but something that is remarkable to me and there's an amazing scene where levine goes out on a sit and he enters the home of a man possibly the most heartbreaking scene in the movie but that's something that from at least from my experience in my life is is gone from our culture which oh, is I, the, I, I welcome cold callers. I love a guy coming by my house unannounced. 
And then I'm just like, come on in, man. Let's let's watch some hockey. You know what I mean? So like when did when did that change? Because I there would be time, you know, I'd come home from, I don't know, like baseball practice one day, and there'd just be like a stranger sitting on the couch yeah. across from my mother having a conversation about something. Trying and to sell would, her aluminum siding or whatever. Yeah, I mean, yes. And that's what it would be. Yeah. There would be it would be a salesperson or it would be someone trying to peddle their religion, or it would it would be a stranger. Now, this didn't happen every day, but it's not completely out of the ordinary for a completely unknown person to be sitting on your couch. I would never let that happen in 2022. Never. I would right. never right. let a strange person sit in my house. And I think you can draw a direct line between the way that we uh, are more cloistered and, and more deeply inhabit our living spaces, the more distance we have from strangers, the disconnect from humanity that we have, I think that like maybe I'm overreading this or maybe this is like my coastal bias or something, but I really just don't think the culture of allowing people in your home, being kind of neighborly, being open-minded about being sold to. Yeah, letting this that's old gone. guy in from the rain, you know what I mean? Who's pretending yeah. to be in from Florida for 24 hours. That being said, isn't this just like an early version of phishing scams? You know, yeah, like for sure. For you sure. accidentally fucking clicked on this link in your email and now all of a sudden you get bombarded with this. You know what I mean? Like, how crazy is it that if I'm thinking of a pair of Adidas, I get 19 emails from Adidas like 10 minutes later? Like, no, that's, that's what it is. Shelly Levine showing up in my house unannounced. It is. It speaks to the fact that human impulse hasn't changed, which is if people feel like they've been presented with an unbelievable opportunity, they might get tricked into pursuing it. But yeah. the way that they pursue that opportunity is so radically different because now if it's anything more than having to click a link in an email, I'm like, I'm all good. I'm good. I don't I, I don't have time for this. I don't want yeah. this. I don't want to have to have this conversation. I'm not interested. And that is a fascinating marker of the time. You know, that alone, I think, makes the film a relic of it of a sort. Who do you think would be better at cold calling you or me? I mean, you're just a way friendlier guy. You know, yeah, you, I'm more, you, I'm, I don't think I would have it nailed down. Like, I think I would be like, uh, Glen Ross Farms. And that is definitely in Arizona, except it's in Florida. My bad. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm good with the keeping of the script. I yeah. know how to stick to the script for sure. I, I mean, the truth is that I have Moss energy and Moss energy. You, it's hard to win with Moss energy. You know, it's like if you've got a little bit of little bit of grit in your teeth, it's not, that doesn't make you a good salesman. It might make you a smart person, but it doesn't make you a good salesman. I don't. I wouldn't say you are Roma esque, uh -huh. but may, maybe you're closer to in his prime Levine. You know, you've got right. a very Shelly gentle touch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're you've got a great sense of humor. You have a touch of humanity. You know, you know how to appeal to people at their base impulse. You know, you you know how to. I, you inspired me. You inspired me. Fifteen years later, here we are on a podcast talking about a movie that we used to talk about in bars. So, I don't know. I think I think I think you'd be better than me. We litigated the Oscars uh, mm -hmm. for this movie to some extent on Scent of a Woman uh, yeah. because this is the year that Al Pacino wins Best Actor for Scent of a Woman beating Denzel Washington controversially because I think a lot of people have gone on to sort of, even the moment, we're like, come on, the Denzel and Malcolm X is the best. Um, I thought he should have won for this. I think you could make the argument that Roma is the lead actor of this movie uh, for the most part. And I think it's criminal that neither Jack Lemmon nor Ed Harris were nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, I, I recently watched an interview with Foley in which he talked about how much Lemmon wanted this. Well, he, how much he wanted an Academy Award nomination. He had already won an Oscar at this point in his career, I believe for Missing, but he... No, excuse me, for Save the Tiger. But he... Um, it, it might be the best he's ever been. 
and and it's a legacy part two because it feels like the machine feels like a continuation of the character that he perfected in the 60s the kind yeah. of like nebbishy fast talking sad sack smart guy in a bad situation and if you watch the apartment the character in the apartment is not so far removed from Shelley Levine. Yeah. And so it would have been like a beautiful kind of capstone. His career goes to like an amazing point after this, though, you know, because in, in this short window of time, he does JFK, uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross, and Shortcuts. Yeah. He works with Oliver Stone. He does Mamet. Then he works with Altman. And then Twice, right after... Because he's in the player too, right? He's in the player. Very briefly in the player. Yeah. And then right after that, he does the Grumpy Old Man franchise. And he's like a movie star. He's a box office star again. I mean, those movies were hits with Walter Matthau. So he, obviously he is one of the, I don't know, probably 20 significant screen legends of the 20th century. And it's really weird to think that they didn't wouldn't crown him. I'm sure some of it is campaigning and also it colliding so profoundly I mean, it, it, with Pacino and Centipede. 10 million bucks, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's weird. I wonder, you know, not being there at the time, I, I wonder how this movie got mismanaged because it was a hit play. I mean, it was, it, it is a hit play to this day. It is like, you could, you could stage this today and it would sell out with one name actor because it is so transportive. But the fact that they couldn't get it to work, even with all of these elements is kind of, it's pretty confusing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a pretty niche product. Like, you know, Mammoth. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. White guys like this movie, man. That, I, that's a big audience. And, and yeah, and we we certainly are an overserved demographic in the in the history of popular culture. I'm just I, I do think that there is a real lack of exposition in this movie that makes it somewhat hard to parse if you're not absolutely enamored with people calling one another cunts for two hours. That's true. And that's just like you and I probably are like in the 99th percentile of people who enjoy watching other people call one another cunts. But here's the thing: like, fast forward 30 years later. Check out House of the Dragon. I mean, this is like sure. This yeah. is what people want now. Twenty years ago, it was in Snatch. But in know, House like, of the Dragon, they're constantly being like, "Ah, oh, my uncle, you have arrived here from this other place. It must have taken you three days." And blah blah blah. Mammoth's whole thing is stripping out all exposition. We do not know what's wrong with Shelley's daughter. We do not know why mm -hmm. Moss is mad. We don't know if Ricky's married or not. Like it, he hates more than anything. The guy who walks in is like, ever since my cancer diagnosis, I have been afraid to commit to other human relationships, but this challenge will make me do so. No, you're you're very right. And he has a an Aristotelian pursuit of very focused goals in his in his plays yeah. and in his scripts. You know, he's got like this is this character's objective. This is all they care about. If you look at how people speak in life, they do not explain their lives clearly. Although I wonder how he would do with writing the life of a podcaster. That would be interesting. I would um, love to see him write the life of a Targaryen. Well, that would certainly improve some of the Targaryen product <laughs> we're getting these days. Uh, I think I think you're right. But even still, I mean, this is we're talking about Hollywood too. So they usually find a way to kind of translate some of these things to audiences, even if they don't totally get all the contours. How did this movie get successful? Like, how did it, since it was not a box office home, success, home video and, and home video dweebs like us being like, we have to watch it again. And, and probably actors over and over and over again, you know, in, in what stage of the best, I was going to mention it, the Baldwin monologue showing up in Barry and how hilarious it is that Hader does. And he does a very sweet, nice version of the monologue where he's just like, put that coffee down. Coffee <laughs> is for closers. And, 
the thing is, is that they're probably still doing this monologue and acting classes in the Valley this week. You know yeah, what I mean? Bo- there's, Bonnie there's Timmerman, a- the casting director, said that recently. That like, yeah. she sees people bringing this in all the time to read. That in kids trying out for acting school, this is what they bring to read, which is crazy. I mean, I, 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 the idea of trying to do that speech while not being a person Alec that looks Baldwin. like Blake is, <laughs> yeah. is, is a test for I sure. Know. Can you imagine me doing that? <laughs> <laughs> you have to be a master of the universe. That's what I was saying before. There's only um, a handful of actors that could have done that part. We'll get to the categories in just a second. Roger Ebert, unsurprisingly, three and a half stars. I watched the uh, Siskel and Ebert. Siskel threw, like, like, took a little off his fastball with this one. He was just like, it is stagey at points. These are Chicago guys. I wonder if they had it like... Kind of like you have to go very far to impress me, but Ebert loved it. So he gave it three and a half stars. Um, We'll take a break and we will jump into the categories when we come back. This episode is supported by State Farm. Think about your first reaction after you have an accident. What do you do? You scream, oh no, or man, why did this happen? On the flip side, let's say you buy a new car or you lease a new car get in there and it smells great and you're like, man, this is awesome. But just remember, really the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. You know what sounds good after a long day? Ice cream. I love ice cream. Right now is the perfect time to get some. Sonic has half-price shakes every night after 7 p.m. when you order online or in the app. Just think of it. All that creamy, soft serve, hand-mixed with your favorite flavors for half the price in any size. Listen, a lot of people like goofy shakes. I like vanilla shakes. You can throw 40 flavors at me. You know what I'm going to order? You know what I love the most? vanilla shakes. It's perfect because me and my family, at least once a week, we still all get ice cream together when we're together. Grab Sonic Half Price Shakes after 7 p.m. now. Exclusions apply. Available for a limited time only at participating Sonic drive-ins. So in some ways, Sean, as we get into most rewatchable scene here, we could do the categories for Glenn Gary. There are two scenes in this movie. Mm-hmm. And in another ways, there's like 20. So I feel like we can break it down in, in any way you want. But the most rewatchable scenes, the first one I have, obviously, is Blake's speech. Um, I have now, I think against my better judgment, completely memorized this thing. Or at least when I watch it, I always know what line is coming next. But I am always just get chills at the littlest, littlest moments in this. Like him getting revved up and he's like, is this all of them? And Williamson's like, no, all, all but one. And he goes, I'm going anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if, what's the longest scene that we've asked Craig to play on a podcast? This is. I think the- we could do ABC. I think that, that we could just like let him play it. Are you man, up to man? Are you man enough to take it? Bitching about that sale you shot. Some son of a bitch don't want to buy land. Somebody don't want what you're selling. Some broad and trying to screw so forth. Let's talk about something important. Are they all here? All but one. Well, I'm going anyway. Let's talk about something important. Put that coffee down. Coffee's for closers only. (laughs) 
You think I'm fucking with you? I am not fucking with you. I'm here from downtown. I'm here from Mitch and Murray. And I'm here on a mission of mercy. Your name's Levine? Yeah. You call yourself a salesman, you son of a bitch? I don't gotta listen to this shit. You certainly don't, pal. Because the good news is you're fired. The bad news is you've got all you've got just one week to regain your job, starting with tonight. Starting with tonight's sit. Oh, have I got your attention now? Good. Because we're adding a little something to this month's sales contest. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. You get the picture? You laughing now? You got leads. Mitch and Murray paid good money. Get their names to sell them. You can't close the leads you're given. You can't close shit. You are shit. Hit the bricks, pal, and beat it, because you are going out. The leads are weak. The leads are weak. The fucking leads are weak. You're weak. I've been in this business 15 years. What's your name? Fuck you. That's my name. <laughs> you know why, mister? Because you drove a Hyundai to get here tonight. I drove an $80,000 BMW. That's my name. And your name is your wanting. And you can't play in the man's game. You can't close them. Then go home and tell your wife your troubles. Because only one thing counts in this life. Get them to sign on the line which is dotted. You hear me, you fucking faggots? A, B, C. A, always, B, B, C, closing. Always be closing. Always be closing. A, I, D, A. Attention, interest, decision, action. Attention. Do I have your attention? Interest. Are you interested? I know you are, because it's fuck or walk. You close or you hit the bricks. Decision. Have you made your decision for Christ? An action. A-I-D-A. -A. Get out there. You got the prospects coming in. You think they came in to get out of the rain? A guy don't walk on the lot lest he wants to buy. They're sitting out there waiting to give you their money. Are you going to take it? AIDA. There's a. I, I think I probably have said this on other episodes of this show, but Baldwin is a is a Long Island guy. I mean, he is he is the the apex, the the epitome of I know better than you, Long Island asshole. Blake and, is the Phil Nicholson of real estate. I mean, he really is. He is. He's wearing a, a gold Rolex. He drives an $80,000 BMW. He speaks in a stentorian tone. He is overwhelmingly overconfident to the point of distaste. That is like a flavor of humanity 
that I'm very familiar with, whether listening to callers on WFAN, going to the driving range with my father as a kid, or even just walking into a deli and hearing a guy order a sandwich. There is a quality of communication that Baldwin has. And it's been interesting. I mean, he's become like a really outsized, oversized figure in the popular culture in the last 30 years, and especially in the last five years because of Donald Trump and all the controversies that he's been ensconced in over the last couple of years. But he has that... Un- he's the. F- it felt like the first time that a guy that I knew growing up became a movie star because he's such a beautiful guy and he's such a gifted actor. And so it's such an unusual thing to place someone who has all of those qualities into, it's not even the closer role. Like if you were going to use the baseball metaphor, I don't even know what it is. It's like if you let a guy pinch hit in the third inning. I mean, this this speech comes so early in the movie. I mean, not, we don't have to spoil it, but like you you can rename Dion Waiters for this character and for this it, performance. It, yes. it is the most heat check off the bench, never to be seen again. This guy was out of his mind for 16 minutes and then just left the arena. It it's it's it it is the reason that this category exists is this part. Yeah. And, and the wild thing is is that he is coming off of Hunt for October, which should have made him and essentially did for about a year and a half before he decides not to do further Jack Ryan movies or they decide not to have him back is he's Harrison Ford. Like, he is the biggest star in this movie in some ways. So, one other thing that Bonnie Timmerman said when they were casting the part, and the kind of the origin of this character is is, is interesting, and Mamet agreeing to kind of, like, expand the story and write this new this scene is interesting, but Bonnie Timmerman was like, don't don't think about The Hunt for Red October. Think about Miami Blues, yeah. which is a movie he made in, what, I guess, 89 or 90, which is this really nasty noir in which he plays... Uh, is he a dirty cop? Is that ultimately what his part is? Yeah, it, uh, he's he's he is a dirty cop. Yeah, um, and that's really the energy that he brings. Oh no, to he's it. just a he's just a criminal, and Fred Ward is Hoke Mosley, and he's chasing him. That's right. Got it. Got it. Um, but he could do this. Like he could go to that place where he didn't have to be the strong chinned Gregory Peck leading man. He could be a piece of shit. I mean, he's a real Blake is an asshole. Yeah, and he's an incredibly intelligent, successful guy who has been tasked with this really like sad job of going to I mean what what time of day is that scene happening is it like 6:30 so p.m. I'm so glad you brought this up because it I think it's 7 okay. about 6:37 now that being said I was just in Chicago this weekend and I arrived at 4:30 and it was dark <laughs> so <laughs> it could have been any time like around 4 or 5 o'clock on um but I'm obsessed with like they're all like, we're going out tonight. We're going out tonight. And it just makes the cold calling, like the idea of one of these fucking wackos showing up at my house reeking of of like Marlboro lights and cutty. Like being like, I have a great property, an investment opportunity for you. It's like, get the fuck off my porch. <laughs> None of those guys look like Alec Baldwin, though. That's the thing. I mean, even, even if you're a successful version of that guy, are you still selling bad properties to Sad old people. So what do you think he does? Do you think that he is essentially like one of the biggest salesmen in the country or in the region and Mitch and Murray, who we can get into, have asked him, like like as he says, on a mission of mercy, that he is supposed to be doing like a motivational speech here? I think so. I mean, I think it's yeah. sort of setting the table, doing something that Williamson is probably not capable of because he doesn't have credibility with salesmen. 
and inspiring these guys and striking fear in their hearts and also setting the table for what the future holds, which is when the Glengarry Glen, Glen, Glen leads hit that they need the killers in there to sell them. But I, it's, a, it's a very weird part. It's probably something that has never happened in the history of this business. It's just like it's a great dramatic device that has been invented. There's probably a reason why it's not in the play. Yeah. It doesn't feel true to the experience of these kinds of guys. But man, it is just, it is a diamond piece of writing. It is a diamond piece of acting. And it's probably the reason why we're doing this pod. I mean, I, I think without this scene, this is not a movie that we're yeah, talking about. I think that there's, there's like a sustained level of brilliance in this movie, but this is the one that gets YouTubes. And this is the one that um, they probably still joke around about on trading floors all over the world. And people say always be closing in almost every walk of life in some capacity or other, and it's kind of gone in and out of style. But um, there's a Vanity Fair article that Sean and I have been referencing a couple of times. It's by Donald Levinson. It came out last week. It's on their site, and it's an oral history, essentially, of the movie. And I'm going to grab something from there right now, which is James Foley on Alec Baldwin's performance. He said, in terms of rehearsal with Alec, I had one day with him. He had the whole scene memorized. I said, why don't we just read this and see what happens? And he got up in this room with me as the audience and he did this scene and I'm not exaggerating. I was never more positive in my life. <laughs> I said, stop it. It's over. Rehearsal over. See you on set because what he did was exactly what he did in the movie. There was nothing to say because it came out that organically. You call yourself a salesman, you son of a bitch? <laughs> I mean, he's... he's uh... This is special stuff. I, I, this, I, whether this wins like most rewatchable is interesting because we've got two guys who've probably seen this movie too many times and are going to overthink this category. I know we're we're like on the precipice of a zag. I can feel it with yeah. this, where it's just like ah. So honestly, what was my favorite scene this time around? Mm -hmm. Were the scenes of Moss and uh, Aaron Allen in the car and then back in the restaurant. So there's basically a scene between the two of them of their night together. After he, after Moss takes George out of the office and he's like, you're coming out with me tonight. We don't see their sit. They obviously are like the door slammed in their face. They go get donuts and then they go back to China Bowl to hang out and talk about whether or not they're going to rob Premier Properties and go over to Jerry Graff. You want me to break into the office tonight and steal the leads? Yes. Oh, yes, George. What does that mean? Listen to this. I have an alibi. I'm going to the Como Inn. Why? Why? The place gets robbed, they're gonna come looking for me. Why? Because I probably did it. Now let me ask you this, are you gonna turn me in? What if you don't get caught? They come to you, you're gonna turn me in? Why would they come to me? They're gonna come to everybody. Why would I do it? You wouldn't, George, that's why I'm talking to you now. They come to you, you're gonna turn me in? No. You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Uh-huh. George, when they come to me, if I have to go in there, and if I get caught, they come to me. You don't have to go in. I have to go in, see? That's something I have to do. Why? Why? You gonna give me $7,500? $75? I thought we were splitting five grand. I lied, all right? Your end's 25. My end's my own concern. Now, stick with me here, George. They come to me. I'm caught. They're gonna ask me who were accomplices. Me? Absolutely. It's ridiculous. Well, did a lawyer an accessory before the fact? I didn't ask to be. Well, it's tough luck, George, because you are. Why? Because you just told me about it? That's right. Why are you doing this to me, Dave? Uh, why are you talking this way to me? I don't understand. Why are you doing this at all? It's none of your fucking business, pal. Just in or out. You tell me. You're out. You take the consequences. I do? That's right. And why is that? Because you listened. 
I think that this these scenes combined are is a fucking miracle. These are so so good. Aaron Harris in this movie in this in these scenes is is, inc- is amazing. It's really brilliant stuff, and it doesn't work without Arkin being able to bounce off of him and being sort of like befuddled and on the back foot. He only has one word answers the entire time. Who? Yes, yes, yes. They should do something. The leads. It's funny because the movie is best remembered for its big speeches and its explosive dialogue, but it probably excels the most at showing what Mamet is very good at, which is very similar to like Harold Pinter, Edward Albee, these guys who could write great speeches, but that who had the sense of cadence between people talking to each other that made for a kind of dynamic energy in communication. These two characters, like you understand everything about them. You understand why like one guy is a loser and another guy is a loser. And they're losers in completely different ways. And it's all in that one exchange, especially the exchange in the in the Chinese restaurant. Yeah. That's the scene to me where it's like, okay, so they're both screwed no matter what happens here. Like no matter what happens, the, the movie has been fully set up. We know exactly what's going to happen. If you don't see a burglary coming a mile away, then you don't understand movies or storytelling. But how they both get screwed is going to be kind of fascinating. And whether like every character is screwed at the end of this movie is an interesting question that I want to talk to you about too. But I really like these scenes. This isn't the one for me though that took my breath away on the second view. Okay, so the um, the one I wonder if it is is the train compartment monologue from Roma and his seduction of James Link. That is the one. Things, things, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just... You try to stave off insecurity. You can't do it. No. No, that's what I'm telling you. Stocks, bonds, objects of art, real estate. What are they? An opportunity. To what? To make money? Perhaps. To lose money? Perhaps. To indulge and to learn about ourselves? Perhaps. So fucking what? What isn't? They're an opportunity. That's all they are. They're an event. A guy comes to you, you make a call, you send in a card. I have these properties I would like for you to see. What does this mean? What do you want it to mean? You see what I'm saying? That is the one where that is something that is outside of the realm of playwriting. That is like tapping into a stream of consciousness of a very particular kind of American con artist and also person who probably has deluded himself into believing his own bullshit that is remarkable and also just meeting Pacino at the perfect moment in terms of his like where he is as an actor which is he is like fully blending the two insane Pacinos the the Michael Corleone I, I am everything I say is right and I will do anything at any cost to win with the the madman that emerges in the 90s who could say anything and you well, believe it side, in a movie. The, the two halves of the movies are exactly the, of the movie is exactly what you're saying. Yes. This scene is quiet, it's self-effacing, it's vulnerable, but it's also incredibly manipulative. The he picks out Link from the second Link says, "Where'd you read who says that about drinking alcohol on hot days?" They say they say you should not drink alcohol on and he's like, "Who says that?" And then he's got him and he just keeps feeding him drinks. And I guess we're led to believe that they go home and he has a dinner with with Link and his wife and he sells them $82,000 or however many thousand dollars of uh, property in Florida. 
and it's it's the whole thing has been basically a con, and he's he, he's conning this guy. But the the tenderness with which he's speaking to him, and the thing is, is I believe him. I believe that he is actually telling the truth, but he's telling the truth for a means. It's a means to an end. That speech um, is a perfect example of something that you find in most mammoth movies, at least, and then some. Mm-hmm. I guess his plays as well, which is elocution over feeling it's more important to say what are they an opportunity to what to make money perhaps to lose money perhaps like there is an over embellishment of every syllable that pacino does that is so perfect for mammoth and you know he had he had done mammoth plays before this like he knows the deal he knows how to read these words and he knows what how mammoth wants them to sound and he's just the perfect guy at the perfect time for this part. Like the he way is, that he says, what, so the line is like my favorite line in that whole thing is like, you know, you think you're queers? I'm gonna tell you something. We're all queer. You think you're a thief? So what? You get befuddled by a middle class morality? Shut it out. Get shut of it. You know, it's just like the way that he talks is like Roma is him. It's not. He's not reading lines. He's like they are originating from this character. It's just. Lovely stuff. So that that's incredible. Also, Chris, watch that scene back to back with the speech at the end of Devil's Advocate because it's basically <laughs> like a pre. It's a prequel to that scene. He literally says, "It's all hell exists scene. on Earth." Pacino, yes, come on. I won't live in it. That's me. Did you ever take a dump? Made you feel like you just slept for twelve hours? I mean, that grotesque beauty is in every mammoth thing, and Pacino knows how to do it. Um, so then there's the last scene, quote unquote, which is essentially a 50 minute scene inside of Premier Properties from the moment Roma walks in to the moment where Williamson takes Levine out. And there's a bunch of different interactions in that. There's Roma's entrance. There's Roma and George. There's, you know, criminals. They come and they steal the phones. Uh, there's Roma versus Williamson round one. Then Shelly get the chalk. Then there's Dave coming out. What did they beat you with a rubber bat? Then there's the whole Dave Roma uh, Levine triangle of like him being like, I think I being confused about who's talking to who at various points in that conversation until Dave leaves. This goes on and on. Link comes back. There's an incredible moment with Lemon pretending to be somebody else. I don't know if you had like within these like a micro scene from the last 50 minutes that you wanted to shout out. It doesn't seem fair on our rewatchables to be like this last hour of the movie is the most rewatchable scene, but it's pretty fucking close. Well, I I will say just the one thing that we're skipping over a little bit, which I've mentioned before is Levine's sit with is, is Bruce Altman. Is that his name? Um, the actor, the character actor. Yes. Um, That scene in and of itself. The name of the character. Yeah. Uh, that scene is a diamond. Like it is, brilliant and it, it it perfectly exemplifies like the sadness and the like the what that work is it's the only time that you see another person a person like truly hating the experience you know yeah. it's the opposite of linked becoming kind of like intoxicated by roma um in in terms of at premier properties my favorite sequence by far is the roma and moss showdown with levine playing oh, yeah. you know referee basically that to me is both of those guys at the top of their game of doing a thing that I think you and I just like, which is just like guys yelling at yeah. each other at movies. Is that what I did, Dave? I humiliated you. Yeah. <laughs> you know you got a big mouth. You make it close. This whole place stinks with your farts for a week. How much you just ingested. Is that what I did, Dave? I humiliated you. Oh my God, I'm sorry. Sitting on top of the world. 
Sitting on top of the world, everything's fucking peach fuzz. Right, and I don't get a moment to spare for some bust-out humanitarian down on his luck lately. Oh, fuck. fuck you, Dave. You know you got a big mouth. You make a close, this whole place stinks with your farts for a week. How much you just ingested. Oh, what a big man you are. Hey, let me buy you a pack of gum. I'll show you how to chew it. Ooh. Your pal closes, all that comes out of your mouth is bile. Ooh. How fucked up you are. Who's my pal, Vicky? How fucked up you are. <laughs> <laughs> that's just really, that scene in particular is great. And and Moss goes to a place of like rage and despair and anger. And But also there's an interesting question of, is he just performing that? Because in fact, he's just committed this crime. Yes. Right. Do I just get to go to Wisconsin now because I was so offended by the police and by Roma? Right. And and whatever is happening in that, like, I don't know what that one police officer investigating this crime is, but everybody who walks out of that room seems to have had their, like, their, their personhood questions. Yeah. It seemed pretty distraught by it. Well, it's a, it's a really cool comment about the frailty of the male psyche. You know, it's just like, even if you did do the crime. I hate being accused of it. Yeah. You have to act like you've been aggrieved because you've been accused of it. You know, I would never do something like that, even if you did it which is just such smart psychology. There's so much smart psychology in the movie. The other thing too is I think that that closing sequence with Levine and Williamson, when Williamson sniffs out that Levine did the robbery, which then leads to that like heartbreaking exchange of because I don't like you, you know, is look at Lemon's eyes in that scene. You yeah. Know, it's, it's, it's crushing. I always wondered whether or not Roma also sort of started to sniff out that it was Levine too. Because he mentions that he had closed not the Nyborgs in the morning. And he's like, you did that this morning? And for a second, I just am like, does he now know that Shelly does not have an alibi for last night? It's very possible. It's very possible. Um, do you think he cares, ultimately? Um, I don't... I'm not sure. Uh, like, I think that he's just curious because... Like he said, always tell the truth. It's the easiest thing to remember. That's what he says to Aaron Allen. I just think that he's like, wow, Shelly walked in here. He's got sold eight units Mountain View. He's rolling. And he seems to really be into him. He's like, I've always been meaning to talk to you. We got to go start working together and stuff like that. But there is a brief moment where he's just like, you closed that this morning? I, really, yeah. I always loved that. And I always loved uh, Jack Lemmon playing D. Ray Morton. And pretending to be the American Express uh, Senior Vice President of European Sales, dot, 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 because he can't think of the rest of his job title. <laughs> oh, the magazine. Yes, yes. Well, that that's not till the February issue. Like, There's so many great little tidbits in there. I do like also when Roma is complimenting Levine after that about how well they did together on that stunt. It's really... I mean, it's Jack Lemmon and Al Pacino together. I mean, yeah. come on. Uh, more subcategories of this long scene. The obviously Roma trying to close again, pretending like he doesn't care about the deal. The deal is dead. This is Ricky. Uh, and then Roma versus Williamson with uh, oh, I'm gonna have your job, shithead. I'm going downtown. I'm going to Mitch and Murray. I am going to Lemkin. Where did you learn your trade, you stupid fucking cunt, you idiot? Whoever told you that you could work with men? Oh, I'm gonna have your job, shithead. I'm going downtown. I'm gonna talk to Mitch and Murray. I'm going to Lemkin. I don't care whose nephew you are, who you know, whose dick you're sucking on, you're going out. I swear to you, you're going. Let's get this done. (laughs) I find out whose fucking cousin you are. I'm going to go to him and figure out a way to have your ass. 
Um, poor Ke- like Kevin Spacey is just getting annihilated in that. I guess not poor Kevin Spacey, but still. And then Shelly and Williamson. Uh, I always really loved when Jack Lemmon walks out of that room and he goes, you are a shithead, Williamson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jack Lemmon, no, like, nobody is better at playing real real bravado than Al Pacino and nobody is better at playing false bravado than Jack Lemmon. It's a, it's a perfect match. So you're going to go with Roma and Link as yours? As your most rewatchable scene? No, come, I'm, come on. We got to do Blake. Come on. Come on. Yeah. We got to do Blake. (laughs) Um, Okay. What's age the best? I have the structure. I mentioned it's a day and night, a night and day movie. And that the last scene of the movie starts with Roma pulling up out of the side of that office and the jazz music starts playing. I just always thought that was like a thrilling way to infuse the movie with its own feel and its own structure rather Mm -hmm. than the play. Um, The way all these guys are dressed from cool to pathetic. I always thought that the costume design of this movie was really perfect. The Roma in Italian stylish suits. And then it's almost like the evolutionary chart down to Levine in his shirt sleeves and his suspenders. And he's all hunched over uh, and feeling miserable. Um, What else is age the best? Ed Harris's 10-year run from 1989 to 1999. Speak on it. What happened? What did you do? The Abyss, State of Grace, Glengarry Glenn Ross, The Firm, The Rock, Truman Show, some some duds in there as well. Not like a no hitter, but those are the those are the hallmarks. Those are the highlight reel of his of his decade. There. This is kind of a silly question, but I think you know you'll know what I mean. Is Ed Harris a movie star? Because, no, but I think he's one of the great character actors of the last forty years. Right, like that's sort of what I mean. Is he was he fully referred to him recently in an interview as a character actor on stage. Ed Harris plays leads. In films, he's brought in for what he did this year in Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. Yeah. One or two scenes, pure power, pure authority. Every time he talks, pay attention. I always felt he has been the star of like many movies. He played yeah, Jackson, I mean, he didn't, Jackson Pollock he didn't in a movie. He win for Jackson. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't win, but he was nominated. Um, but it's, it's interesting to think of like all of these guys who carried movies being given three scenes. Yes. You know, Alan Arkin carried a lot of movies in the 70s. He has three scenes in this movie. Yeah. Jonathan yeah. Price is a pretty big deal in, a, in British dramas. Jonathan <laughs> Price says less than 75 words in this movie. Yeah. And he's, he's brilliant and remarkable. And also such a smart choice there, too, to like uh, cast a Brit as mm-hmm. the outsider, as the non-salesman, the only real non-salesman aside from the cop at the end. It's just very, very clever. So, you know, I mean, what's age the best is like casting six of the best actors of their generations. Yeah, good good job, Bonnie. We should take away good shot Gordo and say great job, Bonnie, here. Good job, Bonnie, yeah. Um, what else is age the best? I We've mentioned like it's sort of the recurrence through pop culture, but the Santa's Workshop sketch on SNL that Baldwin does um, telling Rachel Dratch to put that Coco down. <laughs> Coco is for closers. It's pretty and, great. Uh, the, Barry, the Barry scene is just still like crying with laughter every time I watch it. Uh, it's like it's one definitely funnier than the SNL sketch. Uh, <laughs> second prize is a set of steak knives. You know he's so he's so and musical and happy. Face watching it. It's it's wonderful. Um, I'm trying to think of what else is really like aged well in the movie. The fact that it is so contained means it hasn't aged that poorly. You know, there's not a lot happening in the world that differentiates it. Um, 
I guess like working out of a restaurant is that's cool. Do you is, wish we did that? I do. I I I have always like aspired to have having too much like shit a, now though. We couldn't podcast from a restaurant. Oh, I don't know. That sounds like a dare. Well, I mean, I would podcast from a restaurant, but it took me like I'm still walking around with all this crap from like, you know, like what's the your, pandemic era equipment batch that we have. What's your ideal Los Angeles restaurant to pod from? That's a great it used, question. It used to be 101 Diner. They changed over ownership. But 101 Diner, I mean, geez, sit in a back booth. I would love to do like Musso and Frank, but you know it would just be too loud, right? But maybe that would be good for the for the ambiance. You I'm know? sure that just music to Craig's ears is just you'd like have, the you'd have background CR noise. heads surrounding you too and surrounding that red booth. You know they <laughs> They would. don't go to Musso and Frank. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, I don't know what I mean, there's been a lot of stuff that has not aged well, but I Yeah. Don't, I, we could get I, to that in what's age the worst. It's okay. We can we can we can be candid about this stuff. Uh, so what's age the best? We're we're done there. The kid the kid Cuddy Pursuit of Happiness Award for the best needle drop. There really are no needle drops in this movie except to the very end. But I did find it fascinating. I did a little research on this. So that's Al Jarreau's rendition of Irving Berlin's Blue Skies. Oh, okay. Uh, and I think that this this is what I read. The soundtrack incorporation of Al Jarreau's rendition of Irving Berlin's Blue Skies is an allusion to the Blue Sky Laws. These are state regulations intended to prevent fraud in sales of securities. The term is said to have been popularized by a Kansas State Supreme Court judge who said he hoped to protect investor, investors from speculative jet, jet ventures. Interesting. That's So a little inside joke, I guess, but also nice touch. Like, a, appropriate jazz joint there. Um Big Kahuna Burger Award for the best use of food and drink. I'm going to go Cuddy and Water here. I was going to say J&B. Double J&B for Shelly. Yeah. Double <laughs> J&B before a work meeting is a choice. For Shawnee the Machine Fantasy, a little J&B. It's just not a choice that I would make, you know? I mean, that's the other thing is these guys are all fucking drunks. Yeah, They're all drunks. Really, we really beat like functional alcoholism out of the workplace at the ringer. Ha- have uh, we? <laughs> the Dead of Thieves Benny Hanna Award for Scene Stealing Location. This is the China Bowl, right? I guess so. Although that you mentioned the kind of drabness and the sadness of Premier Property and the way that Baldwin stalks through it like a like a lion is pretty memorable to me. Can you imagine though walking out of a restaurant and as you're getting your coat telling like the maitre D your daughter might be calling and all other calls just tell people I'm at the office or whatever. <laughs> like just having that's, multiple like hostesses like managing your communications. That's what I'm talking city. about. That's what I'm saying. Like, let's find a landing spot where I can send all my calls, you know? Right. When all when all the I don't know, all the the the, the pod producers, when Craig wants to chat and I'm like, I'm not available. I'm at the China Bowl tonight. Yeah. Not gonna I'm happen. Having, I'm having a JMB. <laughs> Um, the Great Shot Gordo Award for the most cinematic shot. There's a bunch of really incredible lighting in this movie, I think. Mm-hmm. I would say more than it, maybe like a, a shot that I remember. Juan Ruiz Anchia did the cinematography and he wound up being the DP on a lot of Mammoth's movies. But the push-in on Alan Arkin when Moss goes says, robbery. like, And then they kind of push it on Arkin. I love that. It's really good. I think also there's a moment when the camera basically cuts and it follows Levine and Williamson into that little side yeah. room. Yeah. And it's so claustrophobic. And it goes handheld. Yeah. And the yeah. walls are closing in on Shelly and that's when it's over. It's over. He's screwed. He's going to jail. 
this movie is about to end. That's like a, it's a big shift away from the style of movie making all the way up until that final moment. It's a really good choice. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. Spring comes with a lot of chores because, you know, spring cleaning. One thing you can clean up right away, your phone bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. They have unlimited talk, text, data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. $15 a month. That's like, you can subscribe to two movie channels for that. I mean, what a great deal. Also, super easy to switch plans. Everyone gets so intimidated by, oh my God, I don't know if I should switch my plan. It's not that hard. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash rewatch. That's us. That's mintmobile.com slash rewatch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month for a first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. Vital Farms keeping it bull free. We always wanted our kids as they were growing up to have stuff that came from the right places. Vital Farms is perfect for this. Here's how good Vital Farms is. You can go to vitalfarms.com slash farm and you can get a 360 degree peek at the actual farm where your eggs came from. Uh, it's a certified B corporation. They are devoted to improving the lives of people, animals, and the planet through food. Great taste. You can do fried, poached, scrambled. Vital Farms bet you can taste the difference. Food simply tastes better when you know where it came from. Shop the farm that's a certified B corporation and gives their hens the lifestyle they deserve. Vital Farms. Look for the black Vital Farms carton in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Uh, what's age the worst? I'm going to go eating a chocolate donut and a regular donut and a cup of coffee and a cigarette for dinner. I'm going to hard disagree. If honestly, if I could do that at this stage in my life, I would do it. I, you would be are, dead at 49. Those are some of the best days of my life when I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Two donuts and a cigarette. I'm, 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 and I'm good. And, at J, and, and I've had two JMBs. <laughs> those were the good times, man. I feel like my body can't handle it anymore. Um, yeah. The, the, the lifestyle hasn't aged well, but people are still living that lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. Most people in their 20s, like they'll just be like, it's time for me to eat like a giant bowl of ramen and have have a, a hard seltzer before I go. I mean, let's let's be real. The thing that has aged the worst has been saying like, I'm a huge David Mamet guy. Yeah. Like that's, that's yeah. it's it sucks. I mean, you and I so saw I, a race on stage in 2009 and it was like, how excited were we? Like, that oh was my like, God. It was James that, like, Bader and Kerry Washington, right? Yeah. And, and we were self-identifying. We were excited for Red Belt. We were just you know a couple I mean? of mammoth guys. We just <laughs> love mammoth. I, I would have, I will watch anything that he has written. Uh, but like in the world at large, it's been a really tough five years. Yes. Uh, it doesn't seem like he can really get anything made anymore. I mean, I yeah. know that he worked for a while on SEAL Team. He had like a CBS show that he worked on for a while. I didn't see that. That's CR content. That's not really for me. And yeah, like, look, you, you know, you, you this we don't have to, 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 to litigate David Mamet's political views, but they are getting increasingly conservative. So that's that. And I'd say like, you know, 
if you're somebody who's watching this movie for the first time, there is some racist language in it. There are some stereotypes oh, yeah. in it that are pretty like, but you know, that that stuff too. So it, that is actually, very accurate for this these guys. That's the thing I that the, I, that to me is one of those things where like to litigate the idea of these characters talking that way actually feels strange. There's some very um, awful stereotypes. I don't even know if they're stereotypes, but awful language about Indian Americans, for example, in, yeah. the, in the in this film and in the stage play, which have, have since been excised yes. from the stage play since it's been performed, which I find to be an interesting decision. And I, I assume Mamet approved this, but is an example of the kind of reactionary politics that Mamet has gotten very out of sorts about in the public sphere in the last five or 10 years. Yeah. He is like a real First Amendment kind of like true let me speak my mind kind of person and I guess has led him down the path of deeply conservative politics. Well, this even is, though, you know, he can go, go, go take Glengarry back out on the road now with 100% more racism, you know? Like, I know, <laughs> I know, like, that I'm sucks. Putting it all back in. I know, that's so, but like the thing is, is like it's a, it's a piece of art that is true to the form. Like these are 60-year-old men living in Chicago in 1984. Of course, they're, there's fucking racist there. Of course, yes. they're saying these terrible things. So that part of it is what is so confusing relative to the status that he occupies in our culture right now, which is really kind of dim, honestly. Like he's just not... He was the leading light of American playwrights in the 1980s and 90s. I mean, he really was probably the most famous playwright in America for a stretch of time there. And he's and just I've, been I've diminished. Maybe I've like learned as much about the art of dramatic writing from him as I have from... William Goldman and I mean if you read some of David Mamet's books and there's even a couple of YouTube videos where um he, there are basically seminars that he's doing on directing and to watch him work with there's like they're doing a play it's like him and Lindsay Krauss and, a, and another actor I forget uh John Higgins I think and they're working through like a scene and watching him kind of like on a micro level break down every single gesture every single movement every single idea that's happening in the scene is it's kind of it, it's just so illuminating to watch somebody think about drama in that way yeah he is an emotional technician you know like he is so brilliant at deconstructing and recombining the purpose of a story and that's part of what was very appealing to me as a kid and even as a young man about his work the other thing is like we're being pretty pointy-headed about this, but he just writes cool fucking stuff. Like he just he writes stories about cool guys doing crazy shit. He writes about con men and salesmen. I like this is like a kind of a recent phenomenon for you on this pod specifically, is you're just like, I'm just let it rip guy. I'm just like, I, I like what I like, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's true though. Like, I think because we've been do doing a lot of movies recently that are kind of primal to my enjoyment, like Saving Private Ryan and Boogie right. Nights and movies when I was like 16, and I was like, fuck yeah. And, and I didn't write an essay about why I liked it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And I, di I didn't have to over-intellectualize it. Unfortunately, I think Mamet's, like I said, his, his status in the culture now like kind of forces you to reevaluate what it is that you liked about certain things. But you can't take away that there is that primal enjoyment that comes from watching this movie and that it is saying something, I think, meaningful about 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 guys like it's a it's a movie about guys and it's a story about guys and the fact that guys get sadder and more desperate and more lame as they get older yeah and, and the guys a, like get high off of destroying one another for sure for yeah. sure giving each other shit which is kind of like an essence of this pod too um here's another thing that's aged the worst blake says that moss drove a hyundai to get to work mm -hmm. moss actually has a pretty nice buick and i would like to <laughs> shout out the guys from uh, AutoWeek.com, who in 2018 <laughs> did an honestly amazing blog post about the cars in Glengarry Glen Ross. I can think of no better union between publication and content 
than autoweek.com <laughs> being like, cars get mentioned a lot in Glengarry Glen Ross. Here are all of them. So I'll go run through them. Blake drives an 850i. Is That is a very expensive automobile. Williamson has a Pontiac Bonneville. Levine drives a 10-year-old Oldsmobile. It's falling apart. Ricky Roma has a Buick Riviera. And I just thought all those pieces of information were relevant to my understanding of the characters. That's the other thing is you could really define a guy by his car in 1992. (laughs) I don't know if you can as much these days. No. No. It it feels different. It feels... All cars kind of look alike. Yeah. There's a kind of sameness and, and... the sad American automaker, you know, that was a different time. It was, just, it was a different time. That's a Do you that's think great you would have bit. driven an 850i or would you have been too self-conscious about it getting scuffed up in the Chicago, New York streets that you were driving in? Were I making $970,000 <laughs> in 1992? Um, I don't know. I probably would have just uh, had a driver if I was making that much money. That's I'm right. not sure if I would have had a car that I would have been driving to work. Nine hundred and seventy thousand dollars in 1992. How much money annually is that now? Like five million dollars? Like three to five, yeah. I mean, that's... Come on. $5 million a year? I mean, he's, he's, he can go out tonight and make $15,000 on tonight's sit with those <laughs> leads. Ron Burgundy flew to word for the best time for a pee break. With all due respect to the legend Jack Lemon, when he's on the payphone, you can go yeah. get a chip. You know? Yeah. Like, after yeah. viewing number whatever, it's like, you don't need to watch him, like, argue with the nurse practitioner about whether or not a bill is being paid. Um, so, best quote, is difficult because we've already done a bunch of best quotes. I almost feel like we haven't done enough best quotes. I challenged myself for best quote. And I'm just, I'm, I'm going to give you some of my favorite Dave Moss quotes because the Dave Moss quotes this time around really jumped out at me. I know what I'll do. I'll rob everybody blind and go to Argentina because nobody ever thought of that before. So they kill the goose and a fucking man's worked all his life. He's got a cower in his boots. And then Arkin's like, boots. <laughs> <laughs> I also one. love robbery. It is a crime. It's also very safe. And then I, I just like the great, like him working himself up and also working Aaron now up as they're walking into China Bowl and him being like, we take the fucking Glengarry leads. And, he, and they're just like standing in the pouring rain as they're imagining like robbing that place for, for Jerry Graff. Did you have any quotes? Obviously like the entire Blake speech speech, um, every insult that Roma throws at Williamson. Uh, well, I think near the end of the Moss blow up, fucked a lot of you is mm-hmm. a very Fuck memorable Moss yeah. moment. Um, a little bit earlier in that conversation, he, <laughs> Dave is so pissed off and he's like, who's my pal, Ricky? Hmm? What are you? And what are you, Ricky? Huh? Bishop Sheen, <laughs> which is one of the weird anachronistic like Bishop yeah. Sheen was a priest who was on TV in the 60s. And it is perfect for the character. And it's a reminder, like, if you're watching this movie in 2022, you, you're bewildered by that. That's an yeah, immediate go-to Google man. moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I really like that one. Um, I don't, I mean, everything, every, everything Blake says obviously contends. Everything Ricky says to length contends. Um, even Williamson, you know, will you go to lunch? Yeah. Will you go to lunch? That That's... Those so are, many of the lines are also surrounded by other great lines that it's sometimes hard to take the line out. I mean, there's so there, the the language in this movie is so dense, and a lot of it is it isn't just the lines; it's the scene with which within which the line is happening. Um, Stephen A. Smith hottest take award. I don't. I have way more nitpicks and possibly unanswerable questions. So let's hear your Stephen A. Smith award. Dave Moss was right. 
this is uh, an inhumane circumstance that these men have been thrust into. Uh-huh. And it's, it's a system designed to control lower middle class men. And he needs to break the system. He needs so to he's break, almost break like the a wheel. proto Jordan Peterson. The way he's seeing this as like a war no. for the independence of men. No, he's yeah. more of a Khaleesi. He's breaking the wheel <laughs> of functioning capitalism by bending the laws to his will and to getting what he needs, and then to getting back to Wisconsin, you know, That's or right. Argentina, or wherever he needs to go to be safe. Um, he's a bad person, but he was right. You know, this is not fair. They keep getting these shit leads. Come on, help these guys out. I have a question. It was for possibly unanswered questions, but I want to ask it now. Okay. What do you think the quality of the Glengarry leads are? Like, what are we talking about here? It imagines a world in which there are hundreds of rubes waiting to be sold bad land. You see that stack of cards? That stack was thick. Yeah. And, and, and the beautiful production design with the gold string. God, I love that. But does that mean that every single name on that card wants to buy eight units of Mountain View? Like, what are we talking about? No, I know. I mean, it's like, I don't even know whether or not people had financial advisors at that time, but is that supposed to be like, hey, this is from a guy over at Fidelity and he, he's inquiring on behalf of somebody who's got money burning a hole in their pocket and they need to get into some land. God, I would hate this These job. These guys are selling magic beans, you know? It's, it's, uh, that's the thing is, it's, that is what is really keeping them on the leash. That is the carrot and they keep getting hit with the stick and they keep believing that there's something over the rainbow for them, that there's going to be a pot of gold somewhere because of the, the leads, quote unquote. And it's just, you know, that's obviously a metaphor for the way that it keeps us coming back to our bullshit jobs. Not you and I. You and I have wonderful jobs. We're very lucky. But, you know, most working people, it's hard. It's really, yeah. really hard to wake up every day and go do the thing that makes you so fucking mad and spend nine hours, 10 hours, 12 hours. If you're listening to Blake berate you at 7 p.m. on a Thursday, <laughs> that's 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 not easy. You're, you're full of fucking chocolate donut having yeah. this guy scream at you. Yeah, you, so you smoke 60 cigarettes a day so you can die at 63 in debt? I mean, that's yeah. just, it's sad. Um, casting what ifs. There's one that I want to focus on here. And that okay. is the the Alec Baldwin right of first refusal Al Pacino saga. So basically what happened was Pacino had always been attached to this. He had always wanted to do it. He felt compelled to bring it to the screen. But over the course of the near decade that it took to bring this movie to the screen, Al Pacino experienced a bit of a cinematic renaissance, was in Sea of Love, was doing his, doing Frankie and Johnny, was coming back to, to screens in a big way. And movie production being the way it is, oftentimes like his schedule might not match up. So while this was always envisioned with Pacino playing Roma, there was a point where Baldwin was in line to play Roma. And essentially, Baldwin was like, if Al doesn't do Roma, I will. And otherwise, I'll still be in it, but I would like to play Roma. Yeah. I mean, he could have done it. It would have been awesome. It would have been great. I mean, I can't imagine really like anyone doing better than Al Pacino. And I know people have tried and maybe Joe Mantegna was on stage in Chicago, like would have melted my face off. But like, this is one of my favorite Pacino performances, but I would have really been interested in seeing Baldwin do it. You, the only thing is that Baldwin is so tall, dark, and handsome at this time that it would have strained a little bit of credulity that a guy like that would not have been able to rise above this circumstance and get into like a bigger playing field. 
Yeah. That's part of what's so great about the casting of Blake is like this guy actually is a, a, a life winner. You know, he's the kind of guy who prevails. Pacino, who, you know, made it his business playing like losers and dirtbags and kind of like unseemly looking characters in the 70s and yeah. Satan. But like in the 70s, especially like if you watch Scarecrow or something, you're like, yeah. this guy's a loser. He can't. And even in his best Italian suit and his hair is feathered just so, he's still 5'6". And he's still like an Italian guy from New York. You know, it's not you you believe that he has reached the highest level of the lowest station in life. Yeah, and he's still get like he still didn't close link. You know what I mean? Like he's That's still, right. like he that gets fucked up. It's not like he is Gordon Gecko. There were there other well, can we talk about so, Montaigne really quickly? Really yeah. quickly. Yeah, um, yeah. So he originated the part and then he went on and won the Tony for Best Actor. He and Prosky were both nominated for Best Featured Actor in a play and he won and there's this famous story that Montaigne tells all the time now about how directly and gruffly that Mamet told Montaigne he was he had sold the rights to the play while he, they were doing the show on stage and then he was not getting the part that it was almost certainly going to be Al Pacino but what I've done is I've written two movies for you that you will get to star in one is House of Games and the other is Things Change another really good movie that he made with Don Amici in 1988 and that's the other thing about Mamet that I really liked is, of course, Mamet had his troop and he had his guys, but that sense of loyalty that he had to write not one, but two movies for Montaigne because Montaigne, you know, kind of got soft screwed out of the part of a lifetime, the part that yeah. changed his life. Yeah. And then got Al Pacino an Academy Award nomination because it's such a special role. But then Montaigne basically like has his career because of Mamet and has his movie career because of Mamet and, and got to star in two really good movies. Um, and I, I just think that's an interesting little it's not a sliding door necessarily because Montaigne never would have been able to be the star of this movie right. for a variety of reasons but it is it is very notable did you like Montaigne on Barry this past season I did I really liked him a lot in part because it felt like what he was doing and, and actually Bill Hader talked to me a little bit about this when I had him on, on the Prestige TV podcast that you could almost feel him like bending that part around the real Joe Montaigne yeah. who is a real like honor bound kind of guy and I, there is this kind of class of working class artists, at, especially out of Chicago, but really out of like major cities around the country who have a very, have a kind of like pretentious, grounded pretentiousness. Yes. That's a really good way of putting it. That I really, I really Ed respond Harris is to. not unlike that. Yeah. Very similar. Where it's like, I could this see is kind Ed of Harris a tough guy. to like a, a place with a neckerchief, but you're still like, I wouldn't want to fuck with him. Exactly. Like he might punch you in the throat. But also, he knows Shakespeare. <laughs> well, and, when Ed Harris didn't stand up for Ilya Kazan, I was like, holy shit. Yeah, yes. This dude yes. is such a G about this, you know? Yeah, yeah. There's a, there is a an ethics to, an ethical point of view in this film, in their work, in the, how they see the world that I just really respond to. I think it's really, really interesting. And like, I don't know if it's even admirable, but it is a way of life for sure. So there were a couple of other people mentioned as being interested in them and it was never clear which roles, but Bruce Willis, Robert De Niro, um, you know, it, it was one of those movies that gets thrown around in rumor mills, but it does seem like once they got Pacino and Lemon in Roma and Levine, like everything else kind of fell into place. And it is sort of hard to imagine Robert De Niro playing like George Aronow. Although I could see him sort of maybe playing Moss. Yeah. I, I mean, could he do Levine is an interesting question. Well, he would have been pretty young then, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. I could see I Bruce Willis at 92. It would have been a little bit into his like movie stardom, but there's a world in which I could see him being a good Williamson. 
Could he do Blake? Oh yeah, Jesus Christ, that would he been could awesome. right? Yeah, if he brought a little Jimmy Conway energy, he could do it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, the Ruffalo Hannah Rubinek Partridge overacting award. They knew and they let it happen. Don't you call me lady? I come in here, I give these things to you. you give me all you got. Listen, give me all you got. I treated you like a son. You fucking stabbed me in the heart. Fuck you. I guess we go with Ed Harris for the end. Yeah. I, I mean, it's overacting is kind of necessity it's relative, in this, right? I mean, Al Pacino's in this movie. I don't really know how we're giving that to anybody else. Yeah. Uh, best That Guy Award, I got Bruce Altman as Larry. Yeah. No doubt winner. Dion Waiters Award changed the name to Alec Baldwin Award. Do you have anything for recasting, Couch? Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about this. I think this is a fun exercise. I'm thinking a lot about actors in their 40s. Now, actors in their 40s now in America are basically best known for portraying superheroes Mm -hmm. or franchise stars. So your Chris's, your Tom Hardy's, your Christian Bale's. Do you want any of those guys in a part like this? I think one of the challenges is that these guys can't be too pretty. Mm Mm-hmm. And they are really American to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I, it, for as much as it would be in, in, interesting to see Christian Bale do something like this, or interesting to see Tom Hardy do something like this, or interesting to see, I don't know, like uh, any any of those guys from the MCU, like P- Paul Bettany or somebody, somebody get in here. There's something very New York, Chicago, shitbag, maybe a year or two of community college, bad suit, drives a Buick kind of energy about these guys that you just don't always get when Benedict Cumberbatch is pretending to be from Oklahoma. Okay. If we were if we were in the 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 budget was infinity, right? We were in blank checkbook territory sure. here. Bezos has come through. Yeah. And he's just like rings of power hit. I yep. can do whatever I want again. 400 million dollar budget <laughs> for this film. Uh-huh. For a stage play. Yeah. Uh, it's Leo. Have David and, F- David Fincher recreates Chicago from ni- in 1984 piece by piece. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. Using all the same technology that the Mandalorian. We'll shoot it on Favreau's <laughs> green screen lot. <laughs> it's it's Leo as Roma. Uh huh. It's it's Joaquin as Moss. Joaquin Phoenix. Colin Farrell as Blake. It's Casey Affleck as Aaron L. Levine is tough. I like I like I like Gary Oldman. You bring Pacino back. Oh, well, yeah. He knows how to do that. He definitely knows how to do that. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you who else I really would be interested to see in something like this is Eddie Murphy. Oh, yeah. I'd love yeah. to see somebody who's really... Because Eddie Murphy, also a king of elocution. Eddie Murphy was such a great comic and became such a great actor because he is an amazing sayer of words. That sounds like a yeah. stupid thing to say, but it is true. And so getting him in the mix somehow, I think would be really interesting. There's also like a class of actor who, of course, could like blow the house down with something like this. Like if you just put like Richard Jenkins and J.K. Simmons in the, in a movie version of this, like two guys who are just like like if you just put Richard Jenkins as Levine and J.K. Simmons as Moss, like they would destroy. Sure, it would be so good. Yeah. But if you're doing the movie star version of the movie, I think it's I think it's a fun exercise. Yeah, it was funny when I was watching that. Um Pacino doing Levine scene that was like part of like the Tonys in 2013. David Harbour was playing uh, Williamson. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I kind of do wonder whether we should just 
have Netflix buy the rights to Glengarry and Glenn Ross in perpetuity and just make this every five years? Well, this is something I might have pitched this on the show a long, long time ago. But, you know, frankly, like one of my favorite things ever is Playhouse 90 and the live plays mm-hmm. that they did on TV in the 50s and in the early 60s. And a lot of great filmmakers came out of that space, like Sidney Lumet, John Frankenheimer, a lot of guys who went on to great, great, great film careers. And one of the reasons they went on to great film careers is because they learned how to block, stage, and coach actors in a real-life environment where the stakes are really high. So when they had more time, they became very inventive filmmakers and very flexible filmmakers. And there have been a handful of live TV experiences in the last 30 years. There's a famous version of Failsafe from from George Clooney. There have recently been a couple of like... um, stage musicals that have been filmed for TV. Mm -hmm. But if they made, if like Netflix or HBO Max or somebody made an event of this where they brought together huge cast of talented actors for very well-known pieces of like American storytelling and restaged them for one night only, like on-demand viewing is such a huge part of our life and sports is the only thing that we can get to people to watch in real time. Yeah, they do this with like classic sitcoms where they do basically like contemporary stars doing an episode of All in the Family or whatever. But I kind of don't understand why at a certain point they should just do for the sake of everybody getting to see it, whether or not I think it's like a good play or not, like somebody, they should just do Aaron Sorkin's To Kill a Mockingbird, right? I I agree. I mean, I think part of the reason why they don't do that is because most actors that appear in film and television now do not come out of the theater or do not right. have the 10-year lifespan Nor do they the want theater. to faceplant by forgetting the monologue on national yes. television And so live. they can fail. And there's more to lose and there's more eyeballs and all of these other things. But there are still a lot of really gifted actors who come out of that tradition who are famous. And you'd want to see them try this stuff. If, like, if, I, were, if I were a hotshot producer... And frankly, this is another thing you could do to raise money is to just encourage people to say, just do this one... We'll raise the money. Do this one night... A oh, year. like as a as a charity? Yeah, I, yeah. Just, I think that would be really cool. I don't know if Glengarry Glenn Ross speaks to sure. the heart of charity necessarily, but for bailing people out of the oncoming housing market <laughs> collapse. <laughs> I mean, that might be perfectly ironic. I don't know. That could be good. <laughs> this should have been part of TARP. It's like we're just gonna <laughs> stage Glengarry and show it. So you fucking guys stop doing this. One more positive jobs report and one more difficult inflation report, and we might have to do this. You know, we can get Biden to play Shelley. Wow. Well, he's been he's been doing it on the national stage now for about three years. So <laughs> get <Anyway>. the chalk. <laughs> <laughs> um, half-ass internet research. Jack Lemon reportedly called this the greatest ensemble he'd ever been part of. I actually not reportedly. I watched him say that on a YouTube video. Uh, Al's desk is the only desk facing in a different direction. Everyone else's de- desk looks forward towards Williamson's office. So just in that Vanity Fair article, they were talking about the little things that they would do with the production design of the office to make it seem like a bunch of slovenly guys who eat donuts for dinner have been working out of there for a decade. Um, Actors would spend days off on set to watch other actors work. I love that, apocryphal or not, like the idea of like, you know, Ed Harris taking a day and just being like in the shadows watching Al Pacino and Jonathan Price work. It's who wouldn't? It's Um, and this is my favorite bit that I found that you I, I did not bother to do all the calculations to find out if this was true. But when the play was written, uh, Rio Rancho, if it is in fact Rio Rancho in New Mexico, was just like basically desert, but it became a suburb of Albuquerque. So it actually would have been a good investment. Oh, that's great. I love that. 
<laughs> I didn't know that. That's so yeah. wonderful. Um, any half-assed internet research on your own? Uh, no, I just wanted to ask you, like, do you have investment properties? Is that something you've considered? No, I was wondering about like what, when it became, if it's still in fashion or not, or when it left fashion to buy eight units of something. Yeah, that's just because my parents had a timeshare in Vermont that they did like the reverse deal Mm -hmm. with it because they like going there in the summer. And it was like this place. And I recently looked it up like the apartment complex and they literally haven't changed like the bedspread since August of 1997. Like it's still <laughs> like the same pictures. It's got like a, a GeoCities website and everything, but they didn't like heavily invest nor were they like, we need to buy seven units of this, mm-hmm. of this small Ver- Vermont apartment complex. What about you? Uh, I, I do. I own you have a uh, lot of Florida land, s- several acres in Azerbaijan, um, <laughs> which, uh, are available for rent if people are curious. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, no, I've never done this before. And it, it it's one of those things where when I hear people... like You hear the sales pitch in this movie and you're like, are these people insane? Like, Why do they need this? Why do you need this? Yeah. Are you so bored and so desperate and so like eager? I guess it, it, is, it is leveraging people's fears that they're not making the most out of their little tiny, tiny piece of, of savings that they have to make more of it and that it, like, it, it preys on their their greed and their insecurity to kind of expand upon that. I understand that as the premise, but like me personally, I got enough problems in, in being living in my house, you know, like yeah. just get getting by living here. Like I, the idea of having to manage more is is exhausting. Well, I don't get the impression that a lot of these people are like really thriving off these investments. I mean, they're essentially criminals. So yes, that's <laughs> it's a fact. pretty bad. Um, Apex Mountain, I think you could make the argument that it is for Pacino. I mean, obviously Godfather is... Uh, is is the alternative, but this is 1992 when he wins Best Oscar for Son of a Woman. And then this performance as Ricky Romo goes on to live on for the next 30 years in a way that I don't think the Son of a Woman performance did. So I would just say Pacino in 92, could you say Apex Mountain? Uh, he's, he's, he's scaled the mountain a few times, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, he... He made... Serpico, The Godfather Part 2, and Dog Day Afternoon all in a row. I mean... Those are pretty good. He's... He's... He's probably the most accomplished actor of his generation. Um, more... Even... Probably more than De Niro. So, uh... I don't... It, it comes in waves. And then he does Jack and Jill like 10 years later, you know? And he gets that, <laughs> that, right. Sand, that Sandler love. So he's... He's... He's, he's thriving to this day. I love him. I, I rewatched The Irishman a few weeks ago and I was like, fuck... Pacino's really great. He's great. I probably haven't done enough Pacino, but it's hard to do him in this movie because he has so many different sort of sort of gears and keys in this movie. Uh, David Mamet on screen, Apex Mountain. It is. It is. I think um, I think the Spanish prisoner followed by State and Maine is a very followed by Heist. That trilogy of movies is him at his best as a filmmaker. Yeah. Three three very different kinds of movies that all are undeniably mammoth that I love to this day that you I wouldn't rewatch. include Spartan in that? Uh, well, Spartan is where the worm turns, right? I mean, Spartan is where it's yeah. like, is he okay? <laughs> yeah. What's going on here? Um, and it reveals like a lot of, I think, some of the underpinning of his thoughts. But, um, you know, it's notable that he didn't direct this because he's just not as gifted a visual filmmaker as someone like Foley who right. like Foley is a real rises and falls by the love the quality of the material filmmaker 
you know, he's made a lot of movies. He made two of the Fifty Shades movies, and he's been. He, he I think he worked on. Do you work on Mindhunter? Fully, it did not. No. What? Oh no, House of Cards. Hearts he worked of Cards. on House of Cards. Yeah. Um, and so he kind of like, depending on what the script looks like, is whether or not he succeeds. In this case, perfect match. Perfect match of everything. Any other Apex Mountains? Is it salesman on screen? What would the competition be? I'm thinking to myself. Because I wouldn't consider this like a finance movie, the way Wall Street is, the way no. industry is a finance show. Would you consider the Mad Men guys salesmen? Sure. Sure. Uh, I mean, they're not... They're ad guys. It's kind of... Kind of different. It's kind of different. I think in real estate sales, yes. Apex Mountain. Tommy in Boy? In Hollywood. Tommy Boy? Is Tommy... I thought Tommy Boy, they made like sporting goods or something. Brake pads. Brake pads. Um, you know, I don't really go deep on the, the Farley Sanders cinematic universe. Really sad for you. Um, Moneyball? As, as a sales movie? This movie has a lot of they're selling with the idea of advanced analy analytics? Yeah, and it's a bunch of unhappy men in a room talking about how to get success. That's like, that is a category of movie that I love. You think Billy Beaton's unhappy? Oh, God. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, he's rich and he's a handsome man and he's a was a great athlete and he's had incredible success, but he never won. He never won. It's true. You know, just uh, like me, never won. Sean, come on. Um, best racehorse name. I have Mitch and Murray. It would help if you had two horses, but I would name the same horse, Mitch and Murray. Oh, man. Best racehorse name. I didn't prep for this. Well, a-I-D-A <laughs> would be a good... Because it would be so confusing, but you'd yeah. know. The funny thing is, like, Always Be Closing is so iconic and so brilliant and so repeated and parodied, et cetera, et cetera. We've mentioned it. You can't have a horse named Only Be Closing, Always Be Closing if it loses, though. That's right. That, well, always that would be, be Closing, bring it, up the, bring it up the rear. It doesn't sound but, good. But A-I-D-A is, is dumb as shit. Like, is that based on something real? I think Attention, that interest, decision, action. Everything he says there is so stupid. I think it seems very rooted in like Midwestern sales also like with a tinge of, of religiosity to it though. Have you made your decision for Christ stuff? Like I'm sure that there is like a huge like Trevor treasure trove of sayings like that from like 50s, 60s sales philosophy stuff. I won't, I won't let this pod end without saying good father, fuck you. Go home and play with your kids. That's the hardest I've ever laughed in a movie. That's... Baldwin saying, go home and play with your kids. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I best. don't give a shit. Uh, <laughs> picking nits. Uh, I think we kind of hit this, but this was... Uh, it's supposed to be Chicago, but it seems like it's also New York. Yeah. Uh, this never really bothers me, but I do... I do. I did notice it, especially coming from off of the, a trip to Chicago. Um, better with Wayne Jenkins, Danny Trejo, Catherine Hahn, Steve Buscemi, Sam Jackson, JT Walsh, or Philip Baker Hall. Now, I think we all know that the answer is Philip Baker Hall is Shelley Levine and JT Walsh getting to play Williamson. You know, that would be amazing to get to see that. But because they I do, did play those roles in the past. Yeah, I have stage. to say that Bernthal would be a fucking amazing Roma. I mean, and what would it sound like? God damn, Shelley! <laughs> I didn't know I was working with the machine. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, I mean, Buscemi as Aaron would work. That would work. Oh my God, yeah. You could see uh, that. Just one Oscar who gets it. I, to me, on the on the rewatch, it was it was Lemon. Okay, I go I go with that. 
I, I, you know, obviously Roma is incredible. Moss is incredible. The whole cast is lights out. Could honestly another yet another example of why, like, why there's not a best ensemble Oscar is fucking beyond me, man. Like, come on, what a fun category that would get all the famous people to show up. Yeah, and then you could do if you wanted to be an idiot and be like, "Here's Infinity War." Gets this? That's fine. Yeah, if the cast is good, who cares? Like, right. I'm these these. It's fish in a barrel for the fucking Academy. I'm just giving out these ideas every year. (laughs) Nobody gives a shit. No one's listening to me. Best ensemble. Get Jack Lemmon out there. 1980s sports gambling shark. (laughs) All I do is give you winners. (laughs) Uh, Possibly unanswerable questions. Probably unanswerable questions. Yep. So midway through the movie, like he's out with Moss is out with Aaron now, and he's like basically saying. Well, I'm not going to get in trouble because what did I do? I'm going to the movies and then I'm going to the Como Inn to get a drink. The movie was shot in August 1991. What movie do you think Dave Moss went to go see? Oh my God. Here are the top five movies in August 91. You tell me what would be the funniest place for Dave Moss to be (laughs) the night of the robbery. Hot Shots. Uh Uh-huh. Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Doc Hollywood. Or Double Impact. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> double impact is by far Dave the Moss, it was fucking loving double impact <laughs> double impact i mean Dave Moss has two donuts and a cigarette dangling out of his mouth watching jean-claude van damme you know what i could see him seeing as the last boy scout that's that's a 1991 movie yeah. that I, I could see dave moss checking out and enjoying or maybe cape fear do you don't think he would be like he goes to doc hollywood he's like that's a good movie <laughs> is oh god what's a what's a I'm trying to think of what's a movie that one of the stars of this movie was in that you could see that. Well, I mean, Jack oh, was in JFK. You know, you could go to yeah, JFK. It would, break, and, it would break the fourth wall there. Yeah. Here's another uh, probably unanswerable question. Okay. You get one scene mm-hmm. to add. Who do you cast as Jerry Graff? Wow. I got Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> You know he can rock with Mammoth, Wag the Dog. Yep. He That's seems really like good. a Jerry Graff. He could get slick, slick his hair back. Is Jerry an older guy or is he a younger guy? No, I think he's like their contemporary. I think they can't believe how well he's doing. They can't believe that he went and struck out on his own. He probably is a little bit corrupt because he's willing to pay for stolen leads. Interesting. I mean, what if it's even more high octane than that? What if it's like Warren Beatty? Yeah, you, you and then know. maybe Hoffman could be twins playing Mitch and Murray. <laughs> <laughs> are Mitch and Murray twins? Mitch and Murray are twins, both played by Dustin Hoffman. Warren Beatty plays Jerry Graff, and Sidney Pollack plays Lemkin. <laughs> I was gonna I'm say going it. to Lemkin! <laughs> Lemkin! <laughs> um, what if we just, just went full bore and just went Schwarzenegger as Lemkin? You know, like, why not, why not just blow it up? <laughs> Let's get let's make this the biggest movie possible. These are the good leads. Um, <laughs> that was your Arnold. I, I've never heard you do Arnold. I know. Um, best double feature choice for this movie. Get to the leads. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best double feature choice for this movie? Um. Well, speaking of Hoffman, you could do the adaptation of Death of a Salesman. Mm-hmm. I think that's it's pretty Jack reasonable. Lemon called Glenn Gary Glenn Ross death of a fucking salesman. Yeah, which is accurate. And they obviously they're inextricable, right? And yeah. 
like Mamet uses Arthur Miller as like a guiding light through various stories that he tells. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of another one. Like I mentioned Moneyball. I think that would be funny. I think that would be kind of an interesting pairing of, you know, two heavyweight screenwriters who excelled at rapid fire patter, mm-hmm. over, double talk, syncopation. Um, I think that, you know, repetition obviously is a huge part of what Sorkin does as well. I think that'd be an interesting one. That's good. I like those bo- both. You're the best. You're the best programmer of the double features of the new Beverly of the rewatchables. Mind what, you know. But what a, what a, what would you pick? I think it would be fun. I think I've mentioned. I don't really like love repeating it, but I think it would be interesting to do Boiler Room because it's fascinating to watch how like the lessons get changed over the years of of a movie and how like. I think people my dad's age, when they saw this film, when they saw Glengarry, they were like, ah, the, the corrupted, dark heart at the center of capitalism. And, and then the Boiler Room generation watched it. We're like, that's pretty sick. Do you think that the makers of Boiler Room think that their characters are heroes? Uh, no, but I think they think that they are pretty entertaining. Right. Right. So, um, the Andy and Red Z wants an AO award for what happened the next day. Is Premier Properties out of business? No. Levine and Moss are in jail? Correct. There's a chance Aronow goes down to Roma just lost his link sale. Jerry Graff is ascendant. What happens to PP? They still got the shattered glass. Nobody's going to come in off the street. Well, one thing that I like that is assumed and I've seen this written about is the idea that the survivors of this incident are actually Roma and Aronow. That okay. Aronow, who is the loser of the bunch, that is clearly the lowest performing figure, survives. Saves his job. Yeah. By not breaking the law, by not breaking the code, by not corrupting the ethics in this unethical world. And that there is something to that. That there is like being the schnook sometimes means you get to pay your mortgage. Or that this is like a uh, almost a moral outcome. That's what I'm saying. Right. Yeah, that, yeah. That ultimately it allows him to kind of continue to operate in this universe, which is unfair, but at least allows for survival as opposed to trying to make something bigger for yourself and inevitably going down. Mm-hmm. I worry about Premier Properties. You know? You think they're closing up shop? I, I just don't know if it's a long, it's got a long, long, longevity. <clears throat> and where are Mitch and Murray? They never, they never pop up. Absentee landlords. I like the idea that, that part where Williamson is like, don't go reclose anything. If we have to get new signatures, Murray's going to come in and pretend to be the president from out of town. It's a great part. Love that. That leads too. me to the Netflix Prestige TV all black cast prequel or sequel question. I do. It's impossible to do it because it's such a compressed thing and it's such an inimitable way of writing. But if you told me that there was like ten more scenes of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross on the floor, I'd be like, put him back in. Let's see it. Totally agree. Um, I also. Best Black cast. I mean, like, just take the cast of The Wire and put them in this show. Yeah. You know, if you just repurposed Wood Harris and Idris and that whole crime syndicate and just made them do Glengarry, wouldn't you love that? I mean, so many of those scenes (laughs) among those characters feel like Glengarry scenes where they're talking in this kind of coded language and it's about a kind of like burdened masculinity and about like winning and beating the game and all of that stuff. It feels so heavily indebted to Mammon in that way. And I would just love to see those guys. I love those actors so much. Uh, what piece of memorabilia would you want from this movie? The 850i? Do we see? We never see it, right? Yeah, because when Levine's walking in, it's the oh, security you're right. is beeping. Yeah, so it's in the rain, but you, you can see it's a big white car. Interesting. Um, 
Big white car in a city, aggressive. Must get it washed a lot. I would never do that. I mean, honestly, I just want that bottle of J&B from China Bowl, you know, <laughs> right now. Oh, the brass balls, Craig, Craig of course. The brass balls. We didn't really of talk course. about the brass balls. You know, can I be uh, honest? I, I don't think the brass balls is funny. Sure, you could be honest. I, I don't, I... I this is a, almost your Stephen A. Smith hot take. Brass balls too much? Well, it's a guy who has got the right line for every single moment. Anything that Moss says back to him, yeah, he's and like, then he's like, "Hold I'll on, I need you. to frame these this like Hammaker Schlemmer office supply right against my testicles." It's pretty weird. Yeah, I don't know. Does that work? I don't know. Oh, yeah, but we just, maybe that's we just, a hot take. No, that's good. I okay. like this. Okay, um, I would take Roma's sunglasses. Those were big for a minute in the early '90s. The Clubmasters, I love yeah. those. Yeah, yeah, I used to rock those all the time. Um, Coach Finstock life lesson. I think this is pretty easy. Never open your mouth until you know the shot. That, right, perfect. That's something perfect. I adhere to. Yep. But it is, it goes against the podcaster's creed, but still, I like it. That's not true. You're a pretty smooth customer. I think you operate with very, with a deep amount of savvy. Hmm. Do, you feel, do you feel that you live your life that way? You don't make a lot of big mistakes, CR. Not anymore. I got them all out of my system. You're a new man. <laughs> You know, I bought a lot of land. <laughs> <laughs> it was tough sledding there for a while. Oh, yeah. uh, who won the movie? I think Mamet. There you go. Right? I'm going to go Pacino, I mean, but I'm, I'm okay with that. So let's bring in the, the tiebreaker. It's producer Craig. A child of the boiler room in some ways. <laughs> Craig, what did you think of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and who won the movie? I think Lemon won the movie. Ooh, interesting. I watched this movie at midnight last night for an hour, and then this morning at 7 a.m. for the second hour. That's good. <laughs> 7 a.m. Ricky Roma Express. <laughs> Did you? So you basically like split it in half, like the two acts. Yeah, I didn't realize that that, that it would actually work out nicely that way. But um, I, I very much enjoy screen adaptations of plays. It just feels like the actors. You can just tell that like there's they they're really having, give they're a having shit. fun. Yeah. They're having like more yeah. fun than normal. That they know they're having something extra to chew on. Um, it's like you two talking about a mammoth movie. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did this movie like mean anything to? Were you aware of it as a yeah, teenager? Did you, for you, example, did you ever have friends quote this movie, or is it was this like a new found thing for you? Yeah, you know, honestly, this is backwards. But the only reason I know about it is because of SNL. I watched SNL growing up a ton and the Alec Baldwin stuff. He used to have all the DVDs of like all the best sketches and stuff. And the Baldwin stuff was how I was introduced to it. And then like memes of, of the Blake speech. Right. But that's about it. Um, I thought, I almost thought, cause this movie came out in 92, which is like right when Seinfeld was starting. And the way that Dave and George speak is kind of Seinfeldian. <laughs> like, yeah. The, yeah. Like the repetition of like, like, like you were saying, Chris, like, the leads. There's no leads. What about the boots? The boots. Like that's a kind yeah. of like George and Jerry, and it's like New York early '90s. I'm sure that. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Larry David and 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 <laughs> and Jerry Seinfeld and Larry Charles had seen some some sign some mammoth plays. No doubt about it. That's a great call. Um. All right, Sean. Thank you so much. Uh. Fuck you. That's my name, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Craig Horlbeck for producing. We'll be back next week. 